Hi folks, this is Jack Spierka with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is April the 29th, 2015. This is episode 1567 of the Survival Podcast, and if I sound excited, there's a reason. That reason is that I am about to interview Curtis Stone. Now, unlike many interviews, when I say that, because it's kind of just set up to make the show flow, I actually mean I am about to do it. Usually I interview somebody, the next day I record this intro, and then I bring them on. I do that just in case they flake out or they're not a really great guest, which hasn't happened very often. But we've had a couple flake outs, which means they don't show up. Or we've had one or two where I just went, no, this isn't, I'm sorry, this isn't going to work. Recently I had somebody that was talking about energy medicine that I'm open to it, but the way he was talking about it five minutes in, no. Today I am safe doing the intro and getting ready and publishing the show because I know the man I'm interviewing. Curtis Stone is awesome. When I met him at Permaculture Voices, he had set a high bar for himself. This is a man farming on a third of an acre that up until recently he didn't own any of it, and making a really great full-time income while doing this, farming other people's land, starting with nothing, back in 2010. That is absolutely awesome. Then when I met Curtis, it was like meeting a brother, a spiritual brother, someone that you feel like, this guy could actually be related to me, and I've just found him. I've had very few people I've met like that. And then we found out that we hit it on all levels, the concept of new anarchism, local trade economies, business ethics, etc., and we're both in the permaculture. So I, I have literally found another brother. When you guys hear Curtis today, he will blow you away with insights and action items. This is a guy that can show you how to build the type of life we talk about all the time if you want it. If you're willing to do the work, you're willing to take the risk, and you want to get it done, Curtis is a great uh, example to follow. Before I bring Curtis on, let's take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you by helping to make sure the show's here for you five days a week, Monday through Friday. Sponsor of the day number one today is KnifeKits.com. Hey, you know what? I really think it would be a great project if you get your kiddo together. I don't care if this is not a male-female issue at all. Everybody uses knives, hey, from the kitchen to the field and back. A knife is an essential tool. And by building your own knife, you get something custom, something unique just to you, and you get to learn a new skill at the same time. You can learn more at KnifeKits.com. When we vetted Knife Kits, we went to every blade forum we could find to see what people's opinion of them were, and that was absolutely outstanding. After four years of working with them, I can tell you why that opinion's so high. Because they provide the best stuff every time with excellent customer service and great pricing. And if you don't know how to build a knife, Hey, they've got books, they've got DVDs, and remember, the kits are pretty much fitting and finishing a handle and doing the final sharpening. And what that means is the handle material is not that expensive. If you mess one up, you mess one up. Try it again until you get it right. That's how we used to learn things before failure became a terrible thing. You want to be successful in life, learn how to fail enough times that you'll eventually succeed. And don't begrudge your failures. A little extra lesson there. Next up today, the company that I can endorse... The easiest of any company I've ever been asked to endorse ever because they're the only company I think other than State Farm Insurance because I just kept them that I've done business with for more than two decades. 21 years I've been a subscriber to Backwoods Home Magazine. Give them a shot. You'll see why. 
They believe in teaching you the life skills necessary to make it on your own, to be an individual that can build a successful business, that can build a successful homestead, preserve your own food, you name it. They've got the information on how to do it. Again, 21 years I've been a subscriber. Give them a shot. You'll see why. And remember, they do offer a, a special deal for members of the Support Brigade on a new subscription. Check out your benefits section to learn more about that. Next up today, hey, MSB. Member Support Brigade, if you're not a member, consider becoming a member. Uh, it will cost you a grand total of $50 a year, unless if you are a first responder like an EMT, paramedic, firefighter, or law enforcement uh, official, or a member of the Peace Corps, active duty or prior service, all of you qualify for a discount. You can email me with uh, TSPC service discount on the subject line before or not after you join. I'll get that data to you. Next up, on the MSB, you know, it's a great deal. You get discounts. Uh, you get content available nowhere else. There's over $150 worth of free ebooks you get on day one, uh, with as little as a $5 monthly membership if you want to do that. And, uh, so it's a great deal. And many of you have been members for a long time. Recently, I had a lot of you guys kind of fall out, uh, at renewal time. And I think mostly it's due to changing your PayPal subscription updates. That's the main reason. Not the only reason, but the main reason. When you change your method of payment, you fall out. So I'm offering a stupid deal right now. Uh, all you have to do is put TSPC return in the subject line and email me with your existing username if you have an expired account to find out the details on that. Those of you who emailed me yesterday, you should hear back from me by close of business today. If you don't, email me again. Your ISP is blocking me. There's a lot of you guys asking for the deal. A lot of you use Gmail. Gmail is pretty bad about blocking messages that have anything to do with uh, a special offer in them. So you might want to whitelist me, add me to your address list. The email will come from jackatthesurvivalpodcast.com. Uh, if you want the deal, I'm only going to say this yesterday and today, and I'm done, and I'm not going to offer it again on the air. Uh, and if I do it like by an email or something to people that expired, it won't be this good. It is stupid, the deal that I'm offering. That's the only word to describe it. And again, it's for people that want to come back. I feel if you've done business with me before, winning you back is certainly worth giving you a ridiculous discount. And that's what I'm going to do. Anyway, everybody else, if you want to become a member, uh, hopefully you won't expire, but who knows? Maybe in the future you'll get one of these ridiculous offers too. Just go to survivalpodcast.com, click on members to learn more. Remember, I do take Bitcoin and silver, and I am open to barter offers as well. If you want to barter with me, put TSPC barter in the subject line. All right, with that, let's take a look at the year that was the episode. The year is 1567. 1567, I have Mary, Queen of Scots, get the, gets the boot, but not the axe yet. And I have Pirates 1, Emperor 0, Money Worthless. I'm going to read that second one for 1567 at the TSP Wiki by the awesome Alex Shrugged. The old Chinese emperor is dead, so all the coins issued in his name are eventually invalidated. His new coins are minted with the new emperor's name. One might imagine there is a lag time, often, often lasting years, during which the country has two types of money. This works a bit like musical chairs. When the new emperor finally invalidates the old money, the music stops, and anyone holding too much of the old money is suddenly broke. Many merchants will follow the old emperor into death when they lose everything. Combined with the restrictions on seaport commerce, pirate smugglers are doing a brisk business. Realizing he cannot stop the smuggling, the new emperor lists the ban on commerce with the pirates. Like every emperor before him, eventually he will restore the ban, and it will, and it will work as it always has. That is... It won't work at all. 
Yes, the market is a force that you can't stop with a piece of paper. I'm sorry, bureaucrats. Anyway, my take by Alex Shrug. Everyone is breaking the law. In modern day, one cannot go through a day without breaking at least one law. It happens so often that people are trained to break Train to break the law, even when they can obey it. Sensible religions and governments encourage individuals to police themselves because inquisitions are messy and policemen are expensive. But when people are taught to ignore that feeling of, I'd better not, I'd better not do that, they are made vulnerable. The old Soviet Union used to arrest people and find something to charge them with later. There were always, there's always something. When almost everyone is breaking the law, the government can control the populace more cruelly than any religious threat of hell. Hell is in the afterlife. Jail is right now. I would agree. I also find it interesting that there was this money issue. And I, Alex doesn't say here, but I'm guessing the money must have been coined in bronze or something like that. Because if it were coined in silver or gold, it would have had an intrinsic underlying value. Now, you know me. I'm not one of these people that would bring back the gold and silver standard because it's the only way to have real honest money. But... When governments are making it a habit to just change the value of money, which today we call inflation, it is one of the ways that an underlying commodity can protect the value of the money of the individual. So, for instance, if these were silver coins minted in the image of the emperor, emperor uh, they may not have the face value. Because, I mean, we all know today that a silver quarter is worth more than a quarter in, in, in the silver content, right? If we have a 1964 or earlier quarter, it's worth more than 25 cents. But in 1930, a silver quarter didn't have 25 cents worth of silver in it. Because money wasn't devalued, but it did have an underlying commodity value. So that had a basis in the monetary value. That is one of the main strengths of a monetary system based on precious metals, that there's an underlying intrinsic value to protect the investment of others. Now, this also makes me think of another interesting little uh, factoid from history, going way further back than, than 1500s. There was a time when there was uh, a, 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 most of debt was actually owned owed to government by the people, that the, the government was the main source of lending. Uh, I'm not saying it was perfect. I'm not exactly fond of the state. But here's why it actually helped people when that was the case. Governments every so many years or so, a couple decades would realize that there was too much debt in the economy. And since the money was owed to the government and the government owed very little to anybody else, and the government could actually control the currency and issue a currency, that if the government didn't get paid all of its debts that, well, it really didn't matter because the government had all the stuff and could just issue new money against the stuff. It's a type of commodity-backed currency. And it was common that governments every so many years or decades, usually about every 20 years, would just forgive debts. Now, not necessarily forgive everybody's debt, but most debts of the common merchant, the, the, the average person that were owed to government would just be canceled. And what that did is it restarted an economy. It's a different way of thinking, and it has to do with the fact that governments at that time actually controlled currency instead of let the banks control the currency. Again, I'm not suggesting that's what we should do now. I'm just suggesting maybe that's not quite as bad as what we have. My take by Jack Spierko. My belief is we should be creating our own currencies. We should be using our own barter systems. We should be exchanging value for value. And even when we're using the state's money, we should uh, 
We should be creative in the way that we handle and process and use that money. And we should think about ways that we can play the game that they play with their own rule book. They call it the tax code. Um, I'm a big believer that if you uh, file anything other than a 1040EZ, a accountant might be worth their weight at least in silver, if not gold, to you. A good CPA that's good with deductions and make sure you take every single thing you can. And I also believe if you build a business of your own, you play with a totally different set of rules that employees do. And on that note, that's what I have someone on to talk about today, specifically doing it in the world of sustainable agriculture, permaculture, call it what you want, but perennial-based and annual-based systems, how to get started with almost no money, how to get started with no land whatsoever, how to actually make a living, how to generate cash flow relatively quickly, and how to use that cash flow to transition to better and better positions in life. He's an awesome dude. He's got a lot to say. I'm glad to have him with us today. And with that, hey, Curtis, man, welcome to the Survival Podcast. Thanks a lot, Jack. Happy to be here. Man, I am stoked to have you on the air. Uh, we're going to talk about just some awesome stuff today. But the first thing I always like to do is let a guest kind of tell their story about how they got to where they are in life at this point. Most of us don't grow up, you know, thinking when I grow up, I'm going to be you know, a backyard farmer or a rancher or a survivalist or whatever it is we're talking yeah. about on a given day. They usually follow some kind of wonky path that leads them there. So could you kind of talk about how you got to where you are and, and, and just the, the basic elevator speech of what you do right now? Yeah. So I run a, um, I'll start, I'll start where I am now and then I'll kind of cool take you through where I started. So yeah, I run a commercial urban farm. That is a yeah, basically a fully commercial farm in in all senses. Um, I sell to predominantly restaurants, and I do sell at the farmers market every Saturday. But I grow a, a pretty specialized group of crops, and so my f I don't own land. Well, in fact, I I do now, but I didn't start with that. I, I basically started a farm by leasing out people's back and front yards in the downtown of my city, and um, so I started with. I started with about a quarter acre growing all kinds of different vegetables. I've grown 90 different types of vegetables, annuals primarily. And um, so we sell the restaurants at the farmer's market. And I, I've grown it. I've been doing this for six years now. I've grown it a lot in the last years. So like my in my fourth year of farming, I was at two and a half acres, which is for the kind of production I do is a lot of land because I, I can produce a lot. Like we can we can do about – about $200,000 per acre with this type of farming. And that's not necessarily scalable to that per se, but that's just as far as the production goes. And so in my fourth year, I scaled it up a lot, had a lot of employees and realized that my margins really went down the larger it was. So I scaled down to a third of an acre after that fourth year and found that I made more money, worked way less and had a far better quality of life on that. And so on a third of an acre, I can do about 85 Seventy-five to eighty-five thousand dollars on a third of an acre, growing a pretty focused group of crops. So it's a lot of cut salad greens, um, baby root vegetables, microgreens, herbs. A pretty focused group of crops that are primarily sold to restaurants. Um, how I got into all this was basically I was a, uh, a working musician, sort of uh, living in poverty. I lived in Montreal, Quebec, which is a pretty big metropolitan city. I'd, been a working musician for many years and 
pretty much wanted to be Kurt Cobain from the time I was 12 years old, and I pursued that. I studied music composition. That was my background. And um, around 2008, I just started to really worry about this shit hitting the fan. And I know this is the audience of people that are share that 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 same thing with me. And you know, this is Bush getting elected the second time. Economy was starting to crash, and I'm thinking, God, I do not want to be in Montreal when <laughs> things go down. Because not only is the city a big city, and if you know infrastructure falls apart, uh, it would be a gruesome place to be because the winters there are absolutely horrendous. They get these freezing rainstorms that will basically shatter the electrical poles and and the the cables, and the the grid can go down overnight. And so, anyways, I was freaked out about being in that place when things happen. So that kind of what spurred me to get into farming. And I started reading books about farming while I was out there and kind of had this vision of being this homesteader, sort of survivalist, really, prepper in a way. Um, but the more I got into that, the more barriers I ran into. Because the thing was, is buying land in Canada in in some places is really, really expensive. Like, my hometown, which, I, which I'm based out of now, to buy land here is like a million dollars an acre. And that's for agricultural land. Hmm. And, and so it's crazy. So, But I, I moved back out west to pursue farming, but I didn't know what that was actually going to look like. So I did a bike tour. I rode my, my pedal bike from Kelowna, which is just, just north of the U.S. border, just in wa- north of Washington, all the way down to Tijuana. And I visited off-grid homesteads, people living on the land, uh, organic farms, intentional communities, you name it. And I was really inspired by what I saw. But more more so, I was inspired about what I did, that I rode my bike 3,000 miles and met a lot of cool people and totally felt empowered at that point, and I felt like I could do anything. And so I heard about these people doing urban farming or spin farming, and I checked it out. And I basically came back with a mission that I just wanted to do this. And so I saved some money from um, a day job that I had for many years, tree planting. And I put some money into this, and I started my farm in uh, one backyard, and then it grew from there. I made a profit my first year. I made $22,000 my first year. And um, it grew, it doubled from there. And um, that's pretty much where I am today. That, that's just an awesome story, man. And um, what do you... I noticed you had in your notes here that you, you've been talking about using quick, quick growing annuals, mm-hmm. uh, because that's what you do with your current system right now. Yeah. And, and when I, when I asked you to come on the show, that's what I thought we would spend most of our time talking about. And then we went down this hole at PV2 of all these other awesome things we're going to talk about today. But coming back to that, I noticed on your notes, you were talking about going into more of a pasture based farm. Well, that wasn't necessarily for me. I just know that there's a lot of people okay. in, in permaculture and, and perhaps in your audience that are doing more pasture stuff. And I think there's a huge opportunity for these types of farmers that are doing agroforestry or um, you know pasture-type stuff or perennial crops to use my system of quick-growing annuals to cash flow their farms. Because I find that's the biggest barrier to a lot of these farms. You've got all this big startup cost. And all these, you know, you need lots of land and, and you don't have a return for quite a while. So I think there's a good opportunity for these types of farmers to intercrop quick growing annual vegetables that have a fast return. So a lot of the crops I grow, that's, that's entirely what my farm is, is quick growing annuals. You know, radishes are ready in 28 days. 
like you can cash flow a business really quickly with these kind of crops. So that's kind of where I see opportunities to use these even urban farming systems involved with those types of farms. Gotcha, gotcha. So can you talk a little bit about like some of the changes you've made to the way you do things? Like one of the things you said is like put your I don't remember what you called it, but something in your back pocket, your ideology, I think, maybe. Yeah, 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 exactly. Right? So when you started out, you did everything on a bicycle. You did everything yeah. by hand, and you made some some changes over time that has made your business largely more efficient. Yeah, totally. That's what I tell people. That's like one of my biggest pieces of advice for people that I'd lecture or in the permaculture community or whatnot is like keep your ideology but put it in your back pocket because – it can be a major drag on the profitability of your business. And I'm not telling people to sell out or compromise everything or anything like that. I'm just saying that, you know, a lot of us come into these types of farming systems, agriculture, whatnot, with these big ideas of, you know, some people get are into social justice or environmental causes or saying screw off to the government. But if you if you go in so hard line with some with some of these ideas and that's like your main thing, it can be extremely limiting to actually getting ahead in the business world. And what I've found is that the more profitable your farm is, and I'm t- and we're talking about sustainable agriculture, anything under the umbrella of that, the more profitable and successful that farm is, all of those other things are built into your success. You can build social equity. You can champion environmental causes. You can champion anarchism, if that's your thing. Um, there's so many things that are built into your success because if you're not successful, nobody, <laughs> nobody gives a shit about your farm. Right? <laughs> I completely like, agree. If, if, you're, if your farm is just a pile of weeds with, with hugoculture beds, people are like, I don't understand that. Yeah. Whereas if your farm looks like production, yeah. production needs no introduction, right? People see it and they go, yeah, I get it. It makes sense. And even if it was a pile of hugel mounds that didn't look like what normally people would understand, if you were if you were going in there and humping out a whole bunch of food every day and putting it up for sale, that's another type of success, and people see that. But if it's just sitting there, you're like, yo, man, I don't do till. Well, yeah. that doesn't really – like no one cares. That's exactly it because if you want to bring people into your cause, and so then this is where like the social stuff comes in for – if you want to spread that message, you can talk about all the esoteric ideas until you're blue in the face. But if, if people look at your farm and it looks, looks like a pile of weeds, you're, nobody's going to come over to your cause. You want to have people come to you and ask you questions. And that's what I found is so built into my, the success of my farm. It is engaging the, the world at large. As people walk by my garden plots and they go, wow, that looks beautiful. That looks like production. What's this all about? Instead of me saying, hey, man, you should be into hygge culture. You should be into permaculture. You should be into forest gardening. It's like, I don't know what those things are. People don't get it. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I've noticed just here with what we do on our property, the, the fact that we sell duck eggs brings in customers, and then customers come here, and they're looking at a food forest built on a swell base system. They don't know that. I don't really have to explain that unless they have that much of an interest, but they understand. Look at a whole shitload of fruit trees here. Well, they understand it. that. They get, oh, that's a peach tree. That's an apple tree. What the hell's that? That's a jujube. What's that? And then you've got them because at that point they're exactly. hooked and they want to know more. Yes, that's it. And that's, and I think that's how, you know, that's how we spread a cause is we, you just walk the talk. And, and I mean, that's, that goes back to b- biblical 
times, you know, these are old cliches, but it really is. You, you can't, you can't force these ideas on people. You have to demonstrate them and you have to win their favor in the free market of ideas. Absolutely. Um, what, what do you do to prepare land when you're, when you're working on a new piece of property? And also kind of with that, could you also talk about how you, how do you get access to land? Because one of the things I was excited about introducing people to here today on the air with you is I hear this crap all the time. I can't get access to land, man. I can't get access to land, man. Well, how did you skin that? Yeah. Okay. So basically it's best to start, go the path of least resistance and uh, you know, in my case, my farm is multi-locational. So I have five different urban plots all within the same downtown area. And the way I started was I started with one. I started with the path of least resistance. What was the most available, easiest place I could get? At that time, six years ago, when I had no experience farming, nobody knew who I was, um, it was a place that uh, a friend of mine's family owned. And they they were interested in me doing this because I was basically going to look after their property, which is a bit derelict. There was some junkies shooting up there. I found 300 drug needles on this site when I first started wow. developing it. So it was a liability to the community or the neighborhood. And so for them, it was like, hey, this person's going to come in, take care of this place and be here. And so hopefully a lot of that trouble will go away. And it actually did. Um, I no longer farm that plot. I've, I've moved on to other things. But I often say, go the path of least resistance. Get some production going. Demonstrate to people that you are willing and able to do the work because that is what speaks volumes. You can't, it's really difficult, and I, and I tried this, it's really difficult to go around and knock on people's door and say, hey, I'm this person who's going to do this urban farm thing. First of all, you knock on the door, they're going to think you're a Jehovah's Witness or some kind of evangelist. That's like, they're like, people don't like being just people showing up on their doorstep, so that doesn't work. You need to bring people in, just kind of what we were talking about a minute ago, is Bring people to your cause by demonstrating your ability and desire and passion about it. So start with something. Maybe it's your grandmother's front yard. Get a wicked badass garden going so that people see it. And then that will be your champion. That will bring people to your cause. And so from there, it becomes a pivot point where you, you establish some kind of place and then Every step you take after that will bring more opportunities because this is just what happens in life, I've found. I'm sure you've experienced the same thing. Once you get something in motion, people start to come to your cause and then all kinds of opportunities open the door. So it's often that first step that seems really difficult. That's why I say go the path of least resistance. Find something somewhere that you can start with. You might not be there forever and don't get hung up on that idea because you might be somewhere else. But just get something going and that garners and builds social equity in your, in your community. Gotcha. I want to ask you another question. Like, so I know that when you started out, you did like everything on a bike. That was part yes. of the ideology not being in the back pocket. Yeah, yeah. You got like a small truck and all. But yeah. I imagine if you were starting from scratch, knowing what you knew now, let's say you moved to a new city and had to start all over again. Yeah. You would probably still use that bike a lot, but maybe not to try to haul four yards of compost with. Yes, but, exactly. But the marketing value of being seen that way, that, and it's also just a fun way to get around. When you're yeah. not trying to haul a, you know, something that should be hauled by a truck behind you. Well, yeah, that's a, it, you hit the nail on the head. Like that's, it, it's funny that it worked out that way because that wasn't my intention. My intention wasn't like I want to farm by bike because it's a great marketing piece. It was just like, no, this is my value. This is what I want to do. I want to live that lifestyle, and I, you know, I want to be hardcore. Yeah, <laughs> and, and it is hardcore because I'll tell you, <laughs> I nearly killed myself many times pulling a 400 pound BCS rototiller on my bike trailer. Yeah. Um, 
but like you said, though, it becomes this really great marketing piece because when people see a person is, is walking the talk, they are stoked. Like you get hardcore customers that are like, I want to support this guy because he's hardcore. He reflects a lot of the values that I wish I could do myself. And that is what really, I think, allowed me to build a lot of attention quickly. Um, if I were to go into a new city, I would do it by bike. I, you know, if I still do a ton of our operations by bikes here, we have, we have two different uh, electric bikes here with trailers and all that. Um, but you know, it's, everything is about the right application for the right place, time and situation, right? And so some places it's just not practical. If you have to be biking miles back and forth, it's not worth it. It's just not, the economics aren't worth it and you'll burn yourself out because I don't want to be spending all of my time on a bike. I need to spend time in the field and with my customers. So, you know, it's all about where does that, where's the value? How do I leverage that value? And so, um, yeah, I, I would do it by bike if it was the right circumstance. Yeah, know? I mean, like you're not going to, you wouldn't do that in Fort Worth, Texas because oh, you end up dead on the side of the road. It's yeah, absolutely. The, heat, the drivers, and it's like one of the most unfriendly bike cities there is. And on top of it, the the infrastructure of like the restaurant base and all, unless you happen to live in like the little bit of hipster town there is, isn't yeah. there for your deliveries to work that way. But like one of the cool things I thought was like that little truck you bought. Yeah. It's unique. You don't exactly. see it every day. And if it's branded with your farm, people are going to be like, that's the guy. And I think well, that's that, it. whether it's a truck, whether it's a bike, whether it's some kind of like crazy contraption you made with a moped, I don't care what it is. If it's, if it's different and it gets people's attention and oh. it serves a purpose, I think it is extremely valuable for the small business person because you don't really need that many customers, but you need good ones. Exactly. And, and, and it's, it was the same thing with the truck. Like I didn't think about it as a marketing piece, but it ended up being that because every time people see that, they smile and, one thing I found in this marketplace is what really sells well is cute. Cute sells like <laughs> crazy. And that I've discovered is because most, if you look at the demographics of people, at least in my region, that shop at farmer's markets, it's predominantly women. Like they are, True. They, they might be married and have kids or, or whatnot, or they might be single. But in a, in a married family, it's the women who's towing the man around to the farmer's market booths. And they're the ones most often they're spending all the money. Not necessarily like cut and dry. It's not all like that. But the majority is. And so I've found over the years that things that are cute, women love. And so it's just, it's just, it's, it's, it's just good marketing. But again, totally wasn't intentional. I just noticed by observation, man. All I get is like awesome comments from women at the farmer's market about how cute that truck is, right? And then they're, they're stoked. Yeah. And then they, they want to be able to buy the product. So when they have their girlfriends over for their dinner party or whatever, they can say, I got it from this cool guy and he does this in the back. So he's got like, it, what I've always said with marketing is it's about telling your story. Marketing is about telling a great story. Then referability is about having such a great story that people retell it for you. Absolutely. And, and that's what that does. It creates this, this vibe of like, I, I want someone to come over and eat this just so I can tell them where I got it. Oh, totally. And that's, that's the whole thing of like a satisfied customer is your best salesman. So it's like, the, yeah, you want to have your customers like super jacked up on what you're doing. And for, for me, that's about crafting a really good story 
So like you've got a high level of engagement, but also what it is on sort of the, the, the front end of the customer service is that being super generous with your customers. Like anytime a customer might complain about something, maybe they got a bag of salad greens that, you know, wasn't all that great or who knows what it could be. Everybody makes mistakes is you go out of your way to correct and make that situation into a better situation. So it's like every time somebody complains about something, which isn't very often, but you know, it happens. Sure. That's an opportunity. That's an opportunity to take a situation that that person probably didn't want to be in in the first place and make it better. So it's like, okay, here's what you got and here's more stuff. Just take some free stuff. And then you have a person like that leave your stall that was kind of approaching it awkward. They didn't want to bring it up. But now they're leaving and they're stoked. And then next time they're going to come back, they're going to bring their friends with you, with them. Yeah, so absolutely. Just, I think if you really ever mess important. something up, you should fix it tenfold. Now, exactly. there's also the place for the customer that you go, you know what? This is one of those people I can't afford to have as a customer. Oh, there's this times person like that has to be fired as a customer. Oh, absolutely. And I, I've totally done that. I mean, I, I, I sell to a lot of high-end restaurants and there's been times, I, I gotta say, everybody I work with now is fantastic. And generally, I only want to work with the kind of people that I can hug that are like, you know, good vibes and all this. But I've had some chefs in the past that are so high maintenance. They're like these prima donnas. And I'm just mm -hmm. like, I don't need this shit. Like, yeah, I, go back to ordering your shit from somebody that ships it in dry ice then. Totally. Like, you know, life is too short, man. I, <laughs> to me, it's not all about the money. It's all about, the other forms of capital, and I know you're well familiar with the, the many different forms of capital that exist. And you know, I'm happy to call myself a capitalist, but there are many forms of capital outside of finance. And building good relationships with people and having a, a nice quality of life is is one of those for me. Yeah, can we talk some more maybe about building social capital and how that plays into uh, a business such as yours? Yeah, I mean it's. It's really about building good relationships. And this is what I love about being an urban farmer. And part of like the book that I'm writing called The Urban Farmer, uh, even the, the online course that we do is really gets into how urban farmers are really set up to build large amounts of social capital or equity in their area because I'm in that place farming in that place and I'm on display. People walk by and they can't help but be engaged in farming. You know, you see it. And people, the farms are so removed from society today. Like, you know, there's 2% of people or less in North America know how to farm anymore. The family farm has been destroyed. The whole concept of, you know, being a farmer is crazy. I know more people that have studied philosophy and public relations than I do farmers, <laughs> right? And so, but, but an urban farmer is very well positioned to build a lot of social capital because you're there, you're educating people on a day-to-day -day basis on how to farm. And it's not necessarily that I'm there giving lessons. It's just people walk by and they see. And every single place I've had a garden plot and I've had different garden plots. I've had 20 different garden plots in various areas in my city for the last six years that have rotated. Some I've left behind and whatnot. At least 10 people have, are, are, have become avid gardeners just from what they've seen me do in each of those neighborhoods. So I'm disseminating information about how to grow, live off the land, and grow a ton of food for people just as an afterthought of me just making a profit in my, in, in my neighborhood. So all these things are built into it. And so you can build incredible amounts of social capital and, and, and neighbors, essentially. Because like I essentially live 
for all intents and purposes, live in all the plots that I'm farming on because I'm out in the front and backyards there more than the homeowners are. So I get to know all the neighbors in that neighborhood. And so every place that I have a farm plot, I know everybody in the neighborhood by name and they know me by name. And so it's an amazing way to spread the ideas that you have, but also make a ton of friends. Yeah, and I think that is a, a big part of success in business up until, oh, I don't know, the last 50 or 60 years. Not that it hasn't worked for the past 50 or 60 years, but I don't think you could do it without a lot of friends 50 or 60 years ago, where today it can be done with television advertising, billboard advertising, et cetera, by the big corporations. And, and that, that old formula, though, of having... Uh, a trusted network of people that will refer you. I think one of the big things the Internet's done is kind of resurrected that for people and made it Absolutely. more accessible. Because today, some chick that people mock on Fox News or whatever because she uses shorthand on the Internet with and has a nose ring and pink hair, uh, and they'll mock her and say stupid crap like, you know, she better not do that at a job interview and what I call their, their countless web 2.0 bitch sessions they have about once a month. Yeah. Um, that girl might have 80,000 Twitter followers, and her saying, hey, this restaurant's cool might, might put $100,000 worth of business in that place over the next six months. Absolutely. And it, 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 yeah, it's, it's allowed us to communicate without these centralized institutions, but it's also brought a high level of accountability to people. And so, you know, even though, and this is why I think the people in a way are winning and will be winning because the internet has really mobilized that for us, brought this high level of accountability. I mean, there's a time, you know, where you can, and it still is today to some degree, you can get away with anything in capitalism as long as you got the government bailing you out, right? Sure. And, and so, But people are starting to call that out. People are starting to see that, and I think that's really exciting. Yeah, I, I feel like what, we're, what we've ended up with is a system where the losses have been made public and the profits made private. Absolutely. I'm fine with keeping the profits private. I would love to do that, especially my profits. Yeah, But I'd like to keep the losses there, too. I don't think we should be paying for other people's failures. Well, yeah, that's it. I mean, and now, you know, we, we're kind of transitioning into... I know both you and I are pretty into the ideas of anarchism or liberty and, and that's, 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 that's exactly it. I mean, I think the thing that people don't really, you don't hear too much in the narrative is everybody's always blaming the corporations. Everybody is always saying, oh, they've done this and they've done that because they got greedy. But nobody really ever asks, well, what about us? Didn't we get greedy? Because I find that just like in a free market, people act in their own self-interest. In a democratic system, people vote in their own self-interest. They vote for the quickest, easiest handout. You know, so any, any politician that prim promises the most amount of free stuff to the largest amount of people is usually the person that gets elected. And so we don't have any long-term thinking. And I think this is where farmers will have a really, uh, we have a real opportunity here to turn things around for people who want to be resilient and who want to get back to the land and build community and get away from this garbage of, everything's got to be centralized. Everything's got to be some welfare program. Like, let's get back to actually taking responsibility for our own actions, accepting the fact that we've been part of a system that has gone awry. And it's not some everybody else's fault. We have to take responsibility for ourselves and start, you know, making changes in our lives. Yeah, yeah, I, I completely agree with that. I mean, one of the things that you, you just said there is people act in their own interest. And I think that 
that can be a problem when you can act in your own interest at somebody else's expense. I think if we actually create a, 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 a system where people are able to act in their own interest and benefit from it but can't victimize somebody else when they're doing it, or at least not do so easily um, through coercion, basically, where the government's got your back while you're doing it, would be a lot better off. For instance, I've floated the idea a couple times, and we talk about this, of virtual nations yes. as a pathway to anarchism. And when I brought up conflict resolution, let's say you and I had a contract, and we agreed to an arbitrator. And the arbitrator arbitrated one of our disagreements, and we had done this completely privately inside this virtual cloud. And the arbitrator came down and said, uh, Curtis is right, Jack is wrong, Jack paid Curtis's money. And what they, one of the people said is, well, how would that get enforced? If you do arbitration in the real world, and even if it's private, then eventually if the person won't pony up, the state can enforce it for you. Yeah. But with people acting in their own interest, why wouldn't Jack just say, screw Curtis, I'm not paying him? Well, hey – have you seen eBay? Yeah, exactly. Right? If if I have a track exactly. record two or three times of going to arbitration, losing and not paying, who the hell's going to do business with me ever again? Well, that's exactly it. And I mean, these these ideas are amazing. Once the shackles come off, I mean, things happen that we we can't even imagine now. And I think that's all possible. And People need to stop being so damn fearful of oh, who will build the roads, who will take care of the poor, you know, like, you know, just get over it and, and start working for solutions. Because once we put one foot in front of the other, all kinds of other opportunities and possibilities happen. And there's already clear examples of that, like you said, in eBay. And I think what this is what I'm, I'm so excited to be part of the new farmer movement is that it's got to start with production. Like we can implement these ideas. But what's got to happen is, and I, I'm kind of over the whole save the world type thing. I'm like, I'll save whoever wants to join the, the party. Yes. Forget this whole save the world thing is, is, is what was always what props up dictators and millions of people always end up dead. So <laughs> let's just, let's just work with the people that, you know, that are on the same page and let's start developing systems and get into production. That's the key because we need to first take care of all of the basic human needs that we need on a day-to-day -day basis. Then we can start really self-organizing and creating these virtual nations like what you're talking about. But until – if you're still just some – just schmo going to some job that you hate and you want to get into this kind of thing, it's going to be a lot more difficult. you got to get into production because the thing that we're lacking today, I believe – is a needs benefit relationship between people in the community. It's why we don't, it's why people who might live on the same street as each other for 20 years will never talk to each other because they don't actually need each other. And I think this is where the root of community is formed is when I, I, I might not agree with the religion of my neighbor or whatever it might be, but my neighbor produces my eggs. And the other guy down the street who is whatever, I might not like him either, but you know what? He does some steel work for me every now and then. The more, the more interdependency we can build in a community based on our needs benefit, then the more we can actually build community. And that means that people got to get into production. Like, you know, we've got all these people coming out of school with degrees in uselessness. <laughs> and now, and now there's this massive saturation of people with all these degrees in uselessness. Let, so, me, hey. let me tell you something about that, dude. I used to be in the regular corporate business world as, as a, a, an owner and partner in three corporations at the same time, fairly large ones, and we were involved in all the Chamber of Commerce and stuff like that. And you go talk to other CEOs, presidents, et cetera. 
And one time I asked a couple, a group of guys that were sitting together. These were all people that owned sizable companies, 50 or more employees. And I, I, I said, how many of you guys, you know, we're just sitting here drinking a beer. How many of you guys are hiring right now? And like everybody was hiring. Yeah. And I said, how many of you guys are requiring a college degree? Every hand goes up. Yeah. Like how many of you guys are hiring for positions right now that don't really need a degree, but you're requiring it anyway? Every hand goes up. Yeah, 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 yeah. Right? I asked why, and this was the consensus agreement between four people running companies of at least 50 employees. There's so many of them. They're so easy to get. Why wouldn't I add that option, basically? <laughs> so it's like going to the, 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 the car dealership, and they don't include the floor mats, but you can get the floor mats for 50 bucks. Oh, Give totally. you floor mats, right? I mean, that's, oh, yeah. that is how devalued we've made these degrees in, you know, general studies or business or liberal arts or psychology or sociology. I also saw some girl posted on Facebook. She had done a commencement address uh, to, I think it was like a girls prep school for so these girls are going off to college. And she said something to the effect is if you want to earn more money, Uh, because you see a discrepancy between men and women. Maybe you should look at a degree in engineering or mathematics versus so sociology or something like that. And apparently it didn't float very well. They were very yeah. upset with her for saying that. Oh man, it's, well, it's funny, but it's, it's, that's, that's kind of what the system wants, right? Like the system doesn't want a, a bunch of people who are self-determined and entrepreneurial. They want just like wage. They just want you to work a wage because you pay higher taxes when you work a wage. And this is where things like minimum wage laws, you know, you get into this and it's, it's got to be the biggest discriminatory system we have, you know, besides say uh, prohibition on, on uh, drugs or previously alcohol is minimum wage is like, you, you got to tell everybody that they have to go through this one channel to get one type of education through recognizable universities or colleges. But then you say, Oh, we're going to raise the minimum wage in some States I'm hearing it, even in BC here, The $15 an hour. It's like totally cut out the bottom rungs yeah. of a group of people who want to learn and get experience. And now you say that they can't get that experience through work. They can only get it through the channels that the government supports. It's insanity. And people in this movement need to see the wolf in sheep's clothing for what this is. It's not for the people. It's entirely to keep us as proletarians working for the state paying income tax. That's all these types of laws and regulations do is they, they, they discriminate against people with low skills. Because you know what? Could you imagine how awesome it would be even in the agricultural sector because there's such a lack of good education in agriculture? If I could hire a bunch of 14-year-old kids who never had a job at $5 an hour. Yeah. But you know, that's my investment in their education. So yep. they're actually getting paid for an education. Yep. They could come in and I could afford to take that risk to take them on and give them a real good education. But not only an education, teach them the values of hard work and, and good ethics. Those kids are going to come out of there and in two years they'll probably be making $30 an hour because they've learned it in the field from somebody who's actually doing it. Whereas you go to university and, you know, they say those that can't do teach, right? You go to university and you learn a bunch of garbage theory and you don't learn anything about hard work. And then you get out in the field and then it's like, well, what, what can you actually do? Because I, I, I'm not kidding you, Jack. I get people emailing me from all over the world who have degrees in urban agriculture. And I, I don't even know what that looks like. And I'm the yeah. one writing books and teaching at universities about it. And I don't even know what a degree in urban agriculture looks like, but I get people that have these degrees and I say, okay, yeah, come around and, and we'll, we'll try out for a couple weeks and they can't work. 
They don't have any idea what they're they have, doing. They no. cannot work. Like, they've got all the theory. And it's usually a bunch of social justice propaganda, actually, yeah. that I've yeah. seen. It's like you go through these university channels, you just, like, adopt this, like, extremely leftist political ideology that's just hammered into the universities. And you get it in the real world, and it's just like everything is social justice and, like, how are we going to feed the poor? And I was just like, dude, i got to plant these lettuce heads. Like, that's yeah. what we need to do right now, yeah. right? Yeah. And they don't know what to do. Yeah, this is how we're going to feed the poor. We're going to teach them to plant a lettuce seed that, that, that costs a fraction of a cent, grow it into a head of lettuce, and sell it for $3 to a high-end restaurant. That's how you feed for, poor people and rich people at the same time and well, make yeah. poor people into freaking rich people. Well, that's exactly it. I mean, there's, there's a meme I've seen floating around online that's really great for this. It's showing, like, liberty versus socialism. And the socialism is you've got all these poor people in a hole, and there's all these rich people on top. And they're lowering buckets of cash down saying, we need more buckets, we need more buckets. But then the, then the liberty meme is like the, uh, the, the poor people down below, the rich people up top, but they're dropping down a ladder, ladder. saying, we need more rungs, we need more rungs, let's bring them up. Yeah. Yeah, and I think the problem is a lot of people will stay in the hole, and I say leave them there. It'll get uncomfortable and lonely fast enough that maybe they'll think about using one of those ladders or ropes or building their own and getting the hell out of there. I, I get very sick very quickly of the social justice stuff. Now, I'm not saying there's not injustice in the world and that some of it's not what we'd call a social injustice. I, But the way the word is used by the people who use it all the time, no. Well, it's, just, it's just a fancy word for socialism. I, I get freaking sick and tired of hearing about the fact that I'm supposedly blessed because I'm a white guy. Oh, God. Right? I mean, I am sick of that. I, was like, I grew up the son of a freaking bootleg coal miner in a, a city where the median income when I was growing up was about $11,000 a year. Um, there's a lot of poor white dudes out there. There's a lot of poor black guys out there. And there's a lot of rich white guys and a lot of rich black guys. And they, all the black guys didn't get rich uh, by playing basketball. And all the white guys didn't get rich because they went to Yale. So yeah, exactly. these people out there are people that have done the types of things you're doing or I've doing. They've just built business. I've the only time I've ever seen the inside of a university is to be a guest speaker at one. I've never gone to a to a college class in my life, and I'm I'm yeah. actually really grateful for it. I'm not saying it's wrong for everybody, but I'm saying it's well, wrong for some people. The, the, the funny statistic with that whole thing is if there's this if there's this like white male club that we're all part of, like this sort of patriarchy thing. Well, then why are ninety percent of prison inmates men? Right. Mm. If, if, if there was some special club, why why wouldn't we be able to get away uh, get away with all the crimes that that we don't get away with? Most most convictions are men because most people in prison are guys. I mean, it's all you got to do is read some books by Thomas Sowell, um, and and you know, a black author who has talked about this nonsense for for thirty years and has shown time and time again that all this stuff is. It's just propaganda from the left to get votes, right? Yeah. I mean, the, le the left, um, the, the, mo the majority of their voting base comes from minorities. So all you got to do to get voted is like what we said at the beginning is promise the most amount of free stuff to the largest group of people and you get votes. So all you got to do is tell people over and over again. And we're really seeing this in the mainstream media today. It's just like endless slew of propaganda that you are victims, you know, yeah. and you need us to help you not be a victim. So your only path to liberty is through the state, and we're your number one ticket. So they hammer it through. You t tell women they're victims. Tell any anybody who's not white that they're a victim, 
And, you know, they believe it because they, they make a pretty convincing argument, you know, and I, I bought into it for years. Sure. But it wasn't until I actually started to travel throughout the U.S. and actually started to, because Canada's predominantly white. I mean, we've got a pretty big Asian population in some places here, but Canada's pretty white. But it wasn't until I started to actually travel through the U.S. and meet non-whites who think the whole social justice thing is garbage. And it, everything <laughs> everything that's portrayed in the media is that if you're black or not white, then you are a Democrat and this and this and this. But it's nonsense. Yeah. There's yeah. tons of non-white people in the liberty movement. There's it's, there's tons of them everywhere. And there's tons of women in the liberty movement, too. I know tons of women in the U.S. and Canada who think who think third wave feminism is nonsense. Yeah. I, I'll uh, tell you, I think the one thing we need to say here, because some of the people that are listening to the show maybe haven't been around a while and, and maybe certainly haven't heard of you yet, this is not code for voting Republican. We're not exactly fans of either exactly. side of the dichotomy at all. I think that oh, I'm, I'm a political atheist, man. Yeah. I don't, I don't, <laughs> I don't vote anymore actually at all. Yeah, that's another thing we have in common. I get, I get some flack for that, but my response to that is, well, which trader would you have me give my endorsement to? Yeah. Right. Which which, yeah. which 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 traitor to my constitution and the principles that I hold dear that I at one time was willing to lay down my life for before I understood that's not actually what I was doing, but yeah. that was that. So that's how seriously I take this. And to this day, I would lay down my life to defend another man for those principles. Which one of those violators of those principles should I endorse with yeah. my vote? And if you tell me I have to vote, the way I see that is that means one of them's entitled to it. Oh, absolutely. Right? I mean, They're not entitled to my endorsement. My yeah. my state and people say, well, vote for a third party. That'll make a statement. I'm like, they don't care if you vote for a third party. They do start to care when people don't show up anymore. Well, I think whole, apathy whole, properly channeled is our greatest weapon. Well, especially if we can become self-reliant. Yeah. Right. I mean, it's it's like the whole saying, what if they gave a war and nobody came? Right. That's 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 what it's got to be. We need to stop asking for handouts because the, the funny thing in Canada here, it's a lot it's a lot different than the U.S. in some ways where our country is a lot more socialist, though the U.S. is becoming very socialist. But, you know, whenever we have protests in the street here, it's it's basically people protesting austerity of like tuition being raised by a hundred dollars a year or or some social program. Um, and it's just like always asking for more stuff. It's just like, yeah. we want more stuff. And it's all, it's, it's never about people taking responsibility. It's always about, um, we want that group of people's stuff. We want, let's tax the rich. Yeah, that's the solution because that doesn't involve us taking any responsibility. That just means let's go and get the government to go and steal from one group of people that none of us know. And so that's easy because then you can just mail it in. It, do, it doesn't mean any taking responsibility for yourself or anything. It's just tick a box and you're good to go. Yeah, and you know, I'll tell you what I consider delusional thinking is believing that something that's never actually happened ever will happen. And so, for instance, I would say tax the rich is a delusion. It no has one has ever in the history of God's green earth tax the rich if you actually define rich the right, right way. Now, there's plenty of those people when they say rich, they mean you and I, and you and I are not rich, brother. Yeah. But, oh no. <laughs> and they mean people that are you know doing better than us as well. And those people I don't consider rich. I consider them wealthy. I consider them affluent. The rich, the one percent, they're always clamoring on about, are the people that you never see. 
You only know a few of their names even. They control things. The majority of the way that they make their, their, their wealth is by selling money into a system they rigged. And exactly. then, they, then they play Monopoly with all the big corporations and ag and farm, etc. And it's all a freaking joke. And they don't give a damn if Pfizer loses money because they own Pfizer and Johnson and Johnson. Well, that's exactly it. They they externalize everything, and that's that's the whole point of making corporations. But yeah, I mean, the whole tax it's 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 a myth because the 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 real rich have the means, ability, and the knowledge to avoid taxation. So you can't, you you know, even even it's funny, I find, you know, a guy like Warren Buffett, who I actually respect as a business person, but, you know, he was going on that, 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 um, he was going on a while about, you know, we need to tax people, people like me more often. And it's like, he's just saying that because he knows <laughs> that they can't tax him. Well, he's the biggest con artist in the world. So here's his deal. His salary is about $500,000 a year. And the reason his secretary pays more tax than he does is he has a better accountant, and she probably makes close to or more money than he does because his corporation, Berkshire Hathaway, pays for all his shit. That's right. Exactly. Now, his corporation, when they do pay taxes on whatever they don't get a loophole to get out of, is paying about 39%. So they're paying one of the highest tax rates, except most of the money that they make as a profit they never pay tax on because there's this loophole and that loophole. I mean, if you look at the money GE makes versus the money they actually pay tax on, it, it's absolutely astounding that anybody would ever call for taxing the rich because you'd look at that and go, well, they don't do that. They just uh, don't do that. Yeah, it, that's it. I mean, but th- th- it's another thing, too, where people just aren't financially educated, right? I mean, it, I, I, I don't even know if I'm all that financially educated. I've, I've come around to certain ideas. And for me, the biggest thing is, is looking outside of finance, is looking how you can build value in your life outside of finance. And when you look at it that way, capitalism actually becomes very liberating because I was definitely one of those types of people, even four years ago, who would have said smash capitalism? Yes. It's this and that, and it, and it, it's what's corrupted everything. But it's not. It's it's cronyism that's that's done that. Capitalism is just a means of exchange. It's just a exchanging value for value. And so for me, I discovered this through just operating a business in a in a in a sustainable, practical, and socially equitable way. Is because I discovered that there are many forms of capital, and you don't have to just deal in fiat currency created by the government. You can deal in whatever you want. I mean, the greatest thing about being a farmer is, and this is extremely liberating, is that when you produce something that everybody needs, everybody needs to eat, right? It's it's that simple. Um, I've got a, a leverage. It's like it's like Ron Finley says. It's like printing your own money. It is, and, and it's it's better than printing your own money. You know why? Because as soon as you go into money, is in currency that we commonly use, a fiat currency, you lose to income tax, you lose to inflation, you lose to sales tax, you lose to all kinds of tariffs that are on top of that. When you trade real value for value, that's 100% of your economic energy and that's how you can raise your quality of life so much quicker and without having anything more on paper. You don't have to work more hours, you don't have to even produce more stuff because anybody that's producing something always has some extra stuff. Yeah. Production, you know, a garden is abundant. Like, even a greedy gardener can't hold on to all of his damn zucchinis in the summer, right? You've got to get rid of those things. And so that is building social capital. It is. Zucchinis to your neighbors and whatever. Those are, those things have intrinsic value. 
And once you get your mind outside of this box that the government and the system wants you to think that everything is in financial capital, because that's how they corral us or funnel us into their way of doing things, you see a whole world of possibilities outside of it. And it's totally liberating. And that's when I realized that is just how much social capital I could build in my area through just farming. I was so I was like, it was a fearful moment realizing, oh my God, what if everything I've been told about capitalism in my entire life, because I was raised a card-carrying socialist. Mm-hmm. My, the NDP party, the New Democratic Party, is the main socialist party in Canada. I've been a part of that. I voted for them in every single election since I was 18 years old. I had this fearful epiphany where I was like, oh my God. It was sort of like um, a cognitive dissonance. Like everything yeah. I've thought my entire life is bullshit. Oh my God. Capitalism is actually amazing. And it's been totally liberating for me. And the more I educate people or talk to people, even like you, that understand other forms of capital, it's like, whoa, so many possibilities out there. I think it's why we need to be talking to to the young people uh, specifically because they're less vested in bullshit. So they're more willing to let go whatever baggage of bullshit they have with them yes. uh, more quickly because they, have, they don't have a lifetime behind it. If you talk to somebody that's 45 years old, which is about my age, that's a, I don't care if they're a Republican or a Democrat or whatever, if they've spent their whole life telling everybody these things, defending these positions, building a life based on it, it's scary as shit. Yes. To go have to like realize like when I say this, it's almost like, you know, coming out at 45 for, for, for a gay person, maybe like, yeah, I've been living this lie and it, I'm everybody that I, that I've made friends of are the people that tend to agree with me and they're not going to want to be around me. And then I'm going to have to look back at all the mistakes that I've made in my life and all this freaking debt that I'm carrying and go, gee, that's not, that's not freaking Chase Bank's fault. That's my fault. Yes. And it's, it's scary as shit. If you're 20, you're like, I don't have anything yet. Don't owe anybody anything yet. Yeah. I figured this shit out now. Now I'm going to get to work. Well, it's like, it's like pulling people out of the matrix, you know? It's, it's the blue, take the blue pill, take the red pill. I mean, I had that moment for sure. And the one thing, I mean, I even pose this as a question to you is like, where do the people in the liberty movement start to say, how worth it is it to spend, like, how much energy can you dedicate to actually trying to pull people out of the matrix? And honestly, Jack, like, I think I've wasted probably years of my life, Great. you know, and it's like, how worth it is it? Is it maybe, maybe a better strategy for us is to like really make work with the people that are, are in this and switched on, make what we do really happening and so cool that people want to go in. It's just like the idea that I proposed at the beginning about the setting up the front yard, like the path of least resistance farm, what's available to you to garner attention. Maybe that's it. Like, what, what are your thoughts on that? I completely agree. I have to say that I spent a lot of my life, and I, I come from the exact opposite of you, the right wing of, of things. And But both sides make good points about certain things, and there's a certain logic to both sides' arguments, and the, the, the illogical is how we then take the other half and go the other way with them. And I remember constantly trying to explain to people why, yes, it's okay for, for people to own a gun. It, it's, it, it's right to defend your family. Or no, it's not okay for the government to get bigger every year. No, it's not okay for them to take more of your money every year. And then, then the thing would be like, I'd find people that would agree with me on that. And then they would start up something like, for instance, the drug war or the gay marriage issue. I'm like, why the hell do you care what somebody else does? I know. And I would pound I my head, like going, how can a rational person 
think that what they believe has, can be applied to another person by force of the state. How can anybody believe that? And one day I woke up and went, oh shit, you know what I am? I'm an anarchist. Damn yeah. it, I didn't know that. And when I realized what that really meant, then I decided, you know what, screw it. And I think it was actually before I even realized that that was the name for it. And I started doing this show and I just started building it. And when I started, like there was like no one listening. I just did it and threw it on iTunes. And the more I gave a shit less about what somebody's opinion was, and the more I just did shit, the more people actually listened, opened up, and let go of the bullshit that was holding them back. And I don't really care what you believe. I don't care what you believe for religion. I don't care what you believe about any of that stuff. I really care a lot more about what you do. Absolutely. I don't know if you'd agree with this, but I think the number one way to get people to actually, when they say they want less government, mean it, is to get as many as people as possible to build businesses. You build a business and you pay taxes as a business one freaking year. And yeah. there's like a thousand things that you assumed about the people that run a business that were wrong. And you can never, it's like, it is like the major, you never go back. Because now you've experienced it. Oh, yeah. So once, this once, is bullshit. It is. Once you start being an entrepreneur, it is very difficult to go back. Unless you're working with a really cool team of people, you know, that you really identify with. Um, but that's it. I mean, I just look at what, you know, does the, is, is the government trying to set it up so that more people can be entrepreneurs? No. No. It's the opposite. That's why they keep raising the minimum wage, you know, funneling people through schools, raising tuitions, putting people in debt. They just want you to get a job, get in line. And, you know, on the way to the slaughterhouse to you, for you, you know, what you, what you also learn real quick though is so you see all the bullshit, but then if you make it, you actually develop a business that works, that's sustainable. So one of the, you know, people say, well, how's a business sustainable? Do they use, you know, soy ink or whatever on their printing? No, the first thing that makes a business sustainable is that it's profitable. Right. If you're yep. not profitable, you're not freaking sustainable. Right. Okay. So you develop a profitable business, which by its very nature is sustainable based on value to your customers. And then all of a sudden you start to learn and you become educated to tax laws and tax advantages and the ways that you can now spend money inside the business that maybe the first year that you got really raped on your taxes. You didn't know you could put that in your business. And all of a sudden you start to play by a completely different book of rules. The problem for the cronies is the system that they've created for themselves can be enacted and used by a sole proprietorship corporation or LLC or LLP. We can all do this. Yeah. Well, and, that's And then once you do that, then you're like, "Oh, I get it now." So uh, yes, thing. when I go to Florida, I am going to fly first class. It costs more, it's worth it, and I'm going to deduct it. Sure, sure. Yeah. And, but that's the thing that I wonder, like, I mean, you know, maybe opening a can of worms here, but, like, I often wonder, is that the big conspiracy? Like, instead instead of there, like, you know, I, I definitely would agree with most people, probably in the sense that there's, like, less than 1% of the people that pretty much run the show here, but when you look at the people that kind of, get really successful they all kind of figure that out and then they just learn how to play the system so like i wonder if it's just the conspiracy is that most people just don't want to do that but the opportunities there like the first thing is to become self-employed and then start learning how finance works and how to like use the system to benefit you know yourself pay less taxes or whatever because Why is it that there's these people that are super billionaires, even politicians like Mitt Romney who can avoid taxation? It's like the system's there for you. But I wonder if the conspiracy is that we've just been so pacified um, over time that we just are demanding that. And I often wonder if that's just the conspiracy itself is that 
it's yeah part of it is the fact that there's all these cronies running all the show but the other is that people have just become so damn lazy and entitled that they want that so like i wonder if i wonder if some of these guys who are running the show are actually just anarchists like you and i that are saying you know what all these dumbasses just want us to keep running the show for them so, so i guess we'll do we'll it you know that. I think it's also a fear-based thing, right? So, like when I when I used to run companies, I would I would hire people and I would offer them different choices of compensation packages, and very few of them would take an entirely incentive-based compensation package. Even something that let's say had a base salary while you built up a book of business for 90 days, and then it weaned you off and you went to a commission versus draw type thing. Nobody ever wanted that because they didn't think it was secure. And yeah. my response was always, well, you can make a shitload more money this way. And by the way, if you're costing me money, you're fired anyway. Yeah, so exactly. You're exactly. You, you'd be better off taking the incentive program because you have the potential to make more, and you have no less chance of being fired. But that's where people want to they want to hover in the median. You know, they want to stay in the sort of mediocrity area. Like, don't be lazy enough so that Jack fires you, but you don't want to take the full risk and burn the boats at the shore and go for it, right? But that's, that's really what success as an entrepreneur is, is you have to burn the boats at the shore and go for it. I mean, when I started my farm, that's exactly how it was, Jack. Like I basically had a, a small pool of cash and I said, I'm doing this. And if it fails, I don't care. Whatever. Yeah. I'll, I'll, I'm, I might have to like go get a shitty job for a while to bounce back, but I'll survive. You know what? No fear. Go for it. And that's why when I, when I see entrepreneurs like Elon Musk, I just get so, stoked about because that dude has no fear yeah he has he has single he's like the single biggest funder for all of like spacex and tesla and this guy is making game-changing technology that is going to change the world for the better more so than any of these damn politicians that are making people afraid about climate change and all this stuff this guy's just doing it he's just going for it and it's like no fear put 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 all the designs for our cars um, open source online, no fear. This yeah. is a massive abundance mentality, which is to me is so next level. And I think, you know, it's, it's something that I wake up and think of every single morning is I always, I always think about that. I have two paths in life I can take. I can, and it's all starts in your mindset as you can go down the road of fear and scarcity, or you can go down the road of joy and abundance or love, basically fear or love. You have that choice every morning you wake up. And ever since I've been choosing love, it's unbelievable how that affects your life. It becomes a law of attraction. Is the more positive intentions and good work you actually do, and intentions only take you so far. You got to you got to follow up. That brings people to your cause and changes things faster than you could ever imagine. Well, and I think what what also happens is if you build success in your life, you inherently become more generous. That that one of the 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 mental programming things that they've done to society is to equate rich with greedy. But I don't know about you, but every time I go to 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 dinner or lunch with a guy that's well to do, the first thing he wants to do is reach for the check. Absolutely. If it's a guy I'm taking out and I want to pick up the check, I generally have to go to the server and say, I don't ever want him to see it. And I have to like finagle it so that he can't pick up the check. You take somebody dead ass broke out to lunch. I'm not saying that they don't want to pick up the check. I'm saying they can't. Yeah. Right. And, and what I've determined is the, the, the more and more success that I built in the conventional model that was just monetary success, 
I don't know that I got that much more generous. Well, that's when exactly. I started building success on my own, of my own avail, and and won or lost based on my own choices, and started to build these these alternate forms of capital with it. I started turning down money. Like people would say, like, well, you know, if you promote this for me, I'll give you a twenty percent commission. I'm like. Just send me an article. I'll throw it on a blog. I don't want your money. Yeah, Or I'd yeah. say, like, can I negotiate a discount? Instead of giving me the money, can you give me the discount for my members? Yeah. And, and, and I got to the point where I'm going do affiliate programs. And people are like, well, you can make so much money doing that. But I'm like, I have so much trust because I don't. Well, that's just abundance thinking. I mean, and this, this is, this is, this is my trip is that I want to get what, what you were just saying there is like, I, I think people in the liberty movement and farmers, People that are that are productive people, not necessarily. It doesn't have to all be farmers, but people that are productive. We need to become super successful, and I don't just mean uh, accumulate vast forms of money. Again, going back to the other forms of capital, we need in the liberty movement, farmer movement, whatever. We need to get super successful and wealthy, and all the different forms of wealth that exist, so that we can actually roll this thing out, actually create infrastructure. And just transcend the damn system. Yeah, we don't, yeah. we don't need to fight a war, man. There's no, and we do need to understand about. wealth, right? We need to understand what the hell wealth means. So, like, one of the reasons you want to make a lot of money is so that you never have to worry about being hungry. Well, if you produce food, I'm just saying there's some food there. Yeah. Have you seen the thing on YouTube? It's like a British comedy thing. The guy starts out and he's got this big wad of cash and he's yeah, like, yeah, a farming, yeah, see this? yeah, it's hilarious. I got this by selling corn. It comes out the ground, you know. And he's like, you see that? That's a chicken. It's yeah. actually made of chicken. Eggs yeah. come out of their ass, and it's like, yeah. it's it's funny, but it's funny because it's true. Well, it's it, it's it's interesting though because I wonder if that was made, if it's sort of ironic and like he was kind of making fun of farming because yeah, farming yeah. has been viewed as like you know the image of farmers today is that they're They're bitter, jaded, they're old, they're broke, and they're living on government subsidy. And that's the majority of farmers in the United States and Canada. Um, and so we need to change that image. We need to go where farmers are like connected to their community. Farmers are people that are leaders that people look to and, and can can make things happen. Because well, you know, What the hell went wrong, dude? Because when I was a kid, just the 1980s, right? If you would have asked any person on the street, especially in any, anything outside of the city, you know, name the top ten occupations that you feel are the most trusted. Not maybe the, the most admired, but the most trusted. Farmer would have been on everybody's list. Oh, I think so. And, it, and it, we're not, you know, we're really only two generations away from when most people were involved in agriculture, like 25 to 50% of people were somewhat involved in agriculture, either directly or indirectly. Personally, I think is the government. I think the government got so involved in, you know, it's this whole thing of we want to help you. And the government gets votes by, you know, um, helping special interest groups to get their votes. And they screwed it up. They, they tried to centralize things. They just, they destroyed the family farm. You know, the, the U.S. decided we're going to go into corn and soy, um, you know, with the help, you know, backing up some big corporations that turned into these big, you know, oligopolies. And um, I mean, I think there's there's many reasons, but it's it's been destroyed through centralization. And that's not what farming used to be. You know, the, the family farm 100 years ago, a farmer did many things. 
And that's what farmers traditionally do is that they're skilled. And I can tell you from my own personal experience by learn by becoming a farmer, I have many skills now. I can build things. I can fix, I can fix machines. I can, I can, you know, build structures, assemble greenhouses. I can do so many different things just through farming. And I think the, the system doesn't want farmers. No, the system doesn't farmers want skilled really, people. Yeah, skilled people are, are bad for the economy. Oh, exactly. If we measure the economy the way they do, a skilled person is terrible for the economy. Let's say I'm an unskilled person and I need a greenhouse. I call up a person that has the one skill of building and setting up greenhouses. I pay him to set up a greenhouse. Mm-hmm. What I've just done is I've moved money. Yeah. Any time money moves, they profit from the movement of the money itself. They exactly. profit through taxation. They, they profit through inflation. They profit through debt leveraging against the GDP. It, everything about it is profitable to the elite and to the government when money moves. It doesn't matter who it moves from and who it moves to. It's profitable to them. Yeah. If I decide, you know what, I want a greenhouse, and not because I'm trying to save the earth, but because I'm trying to save money, I go on Craigslist, find a bunch of windows, buy them for cash or barter eggs or apples for them, bring them to my house and build my greenhouse myself. It does absolutely the square root of F all to the GDP. Right? right. No money moves anywhere in the way that it benefits the people behind the scenes. Now, in that one transaction, it doesn't mean anything to them. It's a tiny mouse fart in in the ocean. Yeah. But if you have two, three, or even four percent of the people start to do this again, their their number can be affected by a 1% lack of growth. So if they grow the economy by a 1%, it's still a recession to them. Yeah, right? exactly. So it's all the solutions actually are catastrophe for the system. You totally. used another word there, centralization, right? So I can, I can give you methods that we could use, not overnight, but over time, to fix every critical problem in America. I know that sounds like an overstatement, but it's not. From the California drought to the, the way that food is being grown in the Midwest to what people are calling social injustice, etc. I can fix all of that shit. I can't fix any of it without decentralizing things. I can fix energy. I have to decentralize. I can fix food. I have to decentralize it. I can fix health. I have to decentralize it. Exactly. Well, that's the thing that destroys the system. They can't have a system without centralization. And to me, that's why everybody that's out there listening to this, when you hear anarchism and you think it's a really scary-ass word, like you need to look deeper and learn more and then make an informed decision. Exactly. And I think, I mean, that's that's a great tangent there is that decentralization in everything is, is if you look at some of the most successful tech companies today, they're massively decentralized. Look at Uber. Uber's yeah. doing really well. Airbnb. All these things are decentralized. Well, you and this is the Tesla, future, right? You mentioned Tesla. Absolutely. The batteries this guy wants to build that you can stick in your house. Yes. The dudes everybody said a battery in your house couldn't do. You, right? I mean, and that, this is what my farm is, Jack, is my farm is decentralized. Of course it is. You know, uh, uh, decentralization is, is the, our ticket to ride and people need to start thinking in these terms and, you know, it's diversification. It's, it's, you know, even going to some of the permaculture ideas too is there is no centralization in nature. No. Uh, so many, so many permaculture people are so like tripped out on this like social justice stuff, which is basically just get the government 
to like distribute the the resources for for everybody to bring social equality. It's nonsense. It never works because there is no centralization in nature. If you're going to talk, this is why I think if you're a permaculturist, you better be an anarchist because if you if you're talking about nature and learning from nature, there is no centralization in nature. No. Monocultures are centralization. In agriculture, a monoculture is centralization. How's that working? Yes, it's yeah. had a lot of people for a while, and it's worked. But we see the long-term repercussions are coming down the road, and we better start making other plans. And so I'm not saying we need to steer the whole ship. Just do your own thing. Absolutely. And there's a whole there's a whole tunnel we should go through there together from what you just opened up. I mean, first of all, think about this. So we know absolutely no in permaculture when we look at system design that we want as many edges in a system as we can because all of the fertility all the interactions all of the abundance exists on edges yeah right? exactly the more centralized you make something the less interactive edge there is the more decentralized you make something the more interactive edge there is you can see that with a lake let's say i build a 20 acre lake there's a certain amount of edge But if I build 21-acre lakes, and those 21-acre lakes are not round, but all kind of whip-wad, you know, off, off cattywampus shaped, yeah. there is so much more edge, and there's more efficiency in the retention, infiltration, preservation of the water. Now, if that works with a lake, it works with a business, it works with energy, it works with every single thing that we hold up as a problem, and then say, fix it. And the other problem with centralization is it allows that to happen, right? So, like, if if your freaking tiller breaks on your farm, right, you're going to fix it or you're going to get somebody to fix it for you. You're not going to stand there and go, I I, I demand that someone, yeah. somebody somewhere give me a new tiller. It's my right. It's right. my it's right, right for, a, for a sick tiller. Because <laughs> you know why? Because it's never going to happen, right? Yeah, exactly. But, But a lot of the crap that people beg for somebody to do for them, it does happen today. That's, that's, and that's because of centralization. If you don't centralize things, then you can't redistribute them. And yeah. here's what I love about, you just keep using that word, and this is what I love about that word, because I misjudged demand for years, David Holgram, because yeah, yeah. he changed the, the ethic to redistribute, and all the purple breathers climbed all over that as a government solution. Then the guy comes out as an anarchist. Yes. And, and Toby Hemingway and I were talking about this, and we, we came to the conclusion of redistribute in that mindset is to redistribute to the people that are involved, right? So exactly. if, if we're doing business together, we are redistributing within our system that we're both working in. That's right. exactly it. It's not, yeah, well, because a lot of people in permaculture have, have, have misinterpreted that whole distribution of surplus thing, like, as, as some, like, another form of socialism. And God, what a mistake that could be. Because it just, it doesn't exist. You know, even when you talk about decentralization and edges, I'm just thinking, you know, to kind of bring it back to urban farming, is that's what I have in, with my plots, is that I have multiple plots and I have multiple edges. And those edges are where I interact with people in the community. There you go. And that's what, you that's, go. That's why I can leverage so much more social equity and build so much more social capital in an area because I have more edges that I interact with. I mean, you know, we need to be a little careful, though, in the sense that, like, I'm not saying everything needs to be decentralized. Like, I'm not going to have the same tool shed at each one of my garden plots. That's not efficient. Sure. You know, I keep all of my tools in one place, but there's, you know, it's, it's, it's looking at the right situation for the right time and place, you know. Um, it's not like completely decentralized everything it's not I, i know some people often will take things that 
others will say so literally. They'll say, yeah. well, and they'll apply it across the board, everything. But it's like, no, 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 that's, you're missing the point. It's like, it's not, it doesn't have to be followed like dogma. No, it definitely doesn't. I mean, and then there's a whole world that breaks up into if, if you and I were operating in the same space, in the same area, in the same neighborhoods, we might actually even centralize some of that equipment and sh cost share it because yeah. that makes more sense. But that's also a voluntary association that we've both made our own determinations about. And if we're smart, we've probably also decided, okay, if it doesn't work out, Here's our, here's our, here's our resolution at the end. Here's who buys who out for how much or whatever for the, the balance of uh, what have you. Uh, so, but you start to get into that pattern, what I call pattern recognition. And then you start to understand how all those things fit together. And then you have a new tool. So if I hand one person a pen, they know how to write with it. I can hand another person a pen. They can use it, uh, to, to, to use it as a lever to open a beer bottle, use it as a pen to write with, use it as a self-defense tool because they understand the full functionality of the tool. Take it apart and make a straw out of it. And just all these different things you can function stack. So when you start to see that, then you look at edges and you start yeah. to realize that the interactive edge also has to currently have times where we have to interact with the state and the state systems. So. Right. One example of that, and this is a question I wanted to ask you, and this is exactly an example of that. You, until recently, didn't own any land. You, now you have, a, you say you own a mortgage. I bought a house. But, yeah, but you, I own you, a mortgage. you have a house. You, you <laughs> farm in your backyard and the backyards of others. I assume none of this land is zoned agriculture. No, none but, of it. But it is a farm, and you're in Canada, so this might not quite apply the same way. But in the United States, if I want to borrow money to 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 go into farming, What I need is a couple years where I've filed a Schedule F, is what we call it in the States. Does your kind of farming allow you to, to file as a farm and thereby would, you know, again, if, if it's different in your country, I, I, like, I don't really like know. Where I get a certain tax benefit, you mean? Well, no. Okay, so like this is how it works here. Let's say I wanted to go down the road and buy 90 acres and put cattle on it. And I wanted to go to uh, an agricultural loaning institution and say, I need money. Here's what my cattle are going to cost. Here's my trailers. Here's how right. much the land is. Here's my business plan. I want the money. If the yeah. business plan is sound, they'll give me the money if, when I'm buying zoned ag land, I have a track record of farming income. I don't even have to make a lot. Right. But when we file our taxes, there's all this bullshit. And one of them is called Form Schedule F. And that's right. farm-based income. So right. your farming activity, you'd put onto that form, and then when you go to that agricultural loan officer and they say, well, what is your track record of farming? Well, here's three years of farming. I've net profited about $70,000 on average a year from mm -hmm. my farming activities. They don't give a shit that it's a different type of farm. They just care that you have an agricultural track record. Right. Uh, we have similar things, and I we have a thing in British Columbia called the ALR, which is the Agricultural Land Reserve. And it was a thing, like many government programs, intended to be something that helps farmers. But in a way, it's actually destroyed a lot of farmers because it's created this like land group, this group, this large area of land spread out around the province. And it's protected that nothing on there, can, you can't have anything on there that isn't agriculture. So what it's done is uh -huh. it's locked farmers into their land. And so you got all these retiring farmers, orchardists here in my area primarily, who orchards have been destroyed. The government, the, the, the whole um, supply management system that the government has come in with has destroyed 
farmers. And so they, they can't sell their land now because nobody wants to buy it because it's only ag land. So mm-hmm. they, you can't, you can't put a, a restaurant on there. You can't even have a farm there that maybe has a restaurant that sells liquor or whatever you want to multi-purpose yeah. and stack functions. You can't do that. So you, you're stuck in it. So we have similar things. And I actually was farming on some land that was in the ALR and it was a pain in the ass because they, if you farm on the ALR and you actually, there's certain criteria. It's like if you farm X amount of, of the land, X percentage of the land, you can save a certain amount on your taxes. And so I just out of just trying to help my landowners save on their taxes because they pay these absorbent tax rates to live on agricultural land. And so I said, okay, yeah, we can write off, we can use my production to help you save some tax money. And I went through this like two and a half month process of going into this office. It's called the, the uh, Agricultural Land Commission office where you go in, everybody's sitting on their computer playing solitaire and you ask for help and they say, oh, you can use the computer over there. It's like, what, what do you do here? What do you people do here? Anyways, I went through this whole process. I got interviewed by agronomists that looked at my production and I said, whoa, this is impossible. Because I'm showing them like, look, I did a lot of money that they're, more, they're, they're not used to seeing on this small piece of land. Like, that's not possible. So they brought agronomists down to the farm to look at it. They scratched their beards and scratched their heads. It's a two and a half month process. In the end, they sent my landowners a check for, wait for it, 97 cents. Oh, my God. Of, of tax benefit. So at that point, I was like, I don't want to, anything to do with government programs involved in agriculture. They've completely destroyed the industry. Like, they have a thing here called supply management, and it's completely leveled the dairy and meat product industry for farmers. Or basically, if, you, if you're concerned about carbon footprint, in British Columbia, uh, food that has a lower carbon footprint for dairy and meat comes from New Zealand. <laughs> because the amount of centralization that's involved here, it's like you, you got to have your animals inspected, but they have to be in a certain type of facility. They have to be slaughtered at a certain arbitoire, then have to be shipped somewhere else to be processed. It's this complete nightmare of centralized planning that has destroyed farmers. And so now there's no, there's such little incentive to get into the business because the barriers to entry are so high. So See, I, you know, just real quick, I think that's why we need every able-bodied young person claiming they want to be in farming in this country to get into it and do it and start doing things like using the on-farm exemptions for slaughtering your own poultry, etc., and get as many people doing it as possible before they do that shit here. Because the number one way you prevent those laws from being passed is having so many people already doing it Exactly. That the people that are buying from them and working with them and interacting with them get pissed and exactly. take it personally other than, oh, that's just another thing the government does. Well, and that, that's exactly it. Like, that's why I, like my system of farming is I kind of call it a gateway. It's kind of a gateway farm because with my system, you, a person can get into growing vegetables and making a profit fast. Like I can turn over a small piece of land that was just say quack grass or cooch grass or twitch grass, whatever you want to call it, some invasive grass, Bermuda grass down south, and turn it over. I can get that thing into production in less than two months and have it making money in three <laughs> months. So there's very little re- fast returns like that in agriculture. And so I think using quick growing annuals as a way to cash flow your business um, is a great way to get into farming. I'm not saying... You know, somebody might want to be a dairy farmer or might somebody might want to do pasture poultry or agroforestry or whatever. 
and that's great. You, but you can use a system like this to work to those systems to get cash flow, recapitalize into the business, and grow it from there. Well, and on a totally different scale, you just described exactly what Mark Shepard did. So when Mark Shepard put in all these chestnut trees, etc., he knew, okay, this is years before these things are going to produce. So he was growing zucchini and asparagus, etc., in the laneways in between them. Yeah. And then as quickly as he could get into to, to, to making money off the poultry, the pork, the trees, etc., more and more and more of that went away. So that's yeah. totally different scale, a totally different type of operation, but it's the same thinking. Do what works fast for money now and use the money and the profit and the time and the freedom that creates to do what's profitable long-term with less input. Yeah, exactly. Well, because like on my farm, with the way I'm farming, you can make $50,000 on a quarter acre of land. So you could literally have you know, a 10-acre parcel of land that you're going to go into agroforestry and pasture poultry and who knows what, nut trees and all that. But then just... Do a couple plots interplanted in the area and you could rotate those plots throughout the year and just get some fast growing annuals happening and get some production going and then put that cash flow back in the business and, and, and go from there opposed to like so many people just want to start big. They, they get an idea and they're like, I want to just go for it all. And it's like take out loans and then, you know, $200,000 or a quarter million dollars of debt later, you're going, uh, we have no profits coming in. Where's the cash flow? It's like, think about the cash flow first. Get that going. The other stuff, figure it out as you go. Because you don't, you know, if, if you're planned, like in Mark Shepard's stuff, I'm familiar with his work, um, you know, the return on those trees is like 10 years or sometimes, sometimes even more than that. So it's like, you can, you can figure that stuff out as you go. You know, you don't have yeah. to have the perfect key line design land right off the, right out of the gates. You can figure that stuff out as you go. First, figure out a short-term solution to get some cash flow going and then go from there. I, I've always said that I think the first goal of a farm, and it's not all direct, but the first thing a farm should do before anything else is feed the farmer. That is not okay. only food from the farm the farmer eats, though. That is a, a economically viable activity that allows the farmer to farm as his occupation and not go to bed hungry every night. Absolutely. You get and that done and it's on like Donkey Kong at that point. Oh, for sure. You've got, I mean, and that's, that's one of the David Holmgren's per, uh, principles of permaculture, right? Obtain a yield. That's what that is. And in my interpretation and, and some of his work is actually some of my favorite work in the permaculture sphere because it gets a little bit beyond like the dogmatic stuff, which I think is sort of the Bill Mollison stuff where it's like herb spirals and, yeah. and uh, plant guilds and swales. And it's just like, Pull the lens back a little bit and see the application to where you are, time and place. Because it's not necessarily those things are swales aren't going to work everywhere. You know, no. key line isn't going to work everywhere. All, you can't just think that you can have these same ideas and apply them everywhere. And that's why I say, you know, if one of the permaculture ethos is is uh, or ethics is to observe and interact. And I think the one thing that a lot of people miss out on is. They only look at the flora and fauna as the thing to observe and interact and not the people. And I, I say that human beings are just as much of a part of the ecosystem as anything else. So you need to observe and interact. And, and on that level, that's the marketplace. The marketplace yeah. is just as much a part of your ecosystem as your bees, flowers, and trees are. 
you got to observe and interact with the marketplace, and that means observing and interacting with the people. And I find you've got to speak the language that people understand. And you go in with these crazy esoteric ideas and think that that's going to disseminate quickly amongst people. You're you got another yeah. thing coming because most people don't get it. But but that's why I think making production look like production is yeah. so important because people get it. Like I, I I'm not saying that my type of farming is going to be around for a hundred years. I have no idea what agriculture will look like in a hundred years. It'll probably have nothing to do with using soil. We could be living on in the space by that point. But it's a transition is people understand my farming because the rows are straight. It looks neat. You know, I've got uh, certain crops here, certain crops there. People get it. They go, oh, yeah, that looks like production. You know, I have some Mexican friends that come and they see my farms. They're like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. That looks like agriculture. But then you show them hugoculture beds or forest gardens. They're like, uh, what is that? So it's it's so important to observe and interact with the people in your area because that's how you build social equity. I think there's like a tremendous number of ways to do that. And you're right on the observation interaction. You have to say, what is my market going to want? And what type of interaction do I want with my market? For some people, they don't really want a heavy amount of interaction with the customer. They want to focus on production. They want to go through more of, let's say, a, a local co-op model or something like that. Some people want to be out there like you talking to people every day, building that individual social capital. I think that it, it's all about making sure that it meets the the needs of the interactive space that you're playing in. And, and there are certain systems that work really good for home production. We have swales here on the property. I have this massive, confusing planting of a billion different trees. but and, and Dorothy keeps pushing towards, like, maybe we should do a pick-your-own. I'm like, I didn't build it for that. Yeah, It wouldn't work for that because it's not set up that way. Now, Stephen Sobekayak, who's uh, a fellow Canadian yep, of yours, yep. he put in his orchard, even though there's all these different varieties, they're all timed out, they're all in rows, they're all set up in ways. It's permaculture is all get-out. But it's designed specifically so that a customer can show up this week and go, what's available? They're in rows three, five, and, 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 and seven. They're right over there. Everything in this section down is, is ripe. Pick what you like. Yeah. This is what yeah. it looks like when it's ripe. This is how you pick it. Put it in your basket. Bring it here. And they do their own work. <laughs> they do exactly. their own harvesting. Yeah. And they have to pay a membership before they can even go there to buy the food. Oh, it's a, it's Genius. a brilliant, it's a brilliant business model. Stefan's work is, is, is incredible. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, yeah, designing it for the humans. I mean, that's one thing that a lot of permaculturists forget is they just get so hung up on these, like, where's the herb spiral? Where's the keyhole garden? <laughs> it's like, God, forget the dogma, you know? And that's what people, you know, I find it's the sort of the newcomers into permaculture. They even look at my farms and they go, oh, man, where, where's all that stuff? Where's the polyculture? Yeah, exactly. The whole the damn polyculture. thing's a polyculture. Yeah, exactly. Like, just pull the lens back a little bit and look at how it fits into the neighborhood. Then yeah. you see polyculture. Then you see all this diversity. But, you know, 500 square feet of spinach isn't a monoculture. No. No, that's what I've been frustrated with my whole life. Five thousand movement is a monoculture. Yeah, when they say like that bed of corn is a monoculture. No, that's a bed of corn. And on the other side of it are fifteen fruit trees, and on this side of it is is a bed of lettuce, and then right next to that is a row of raspberries. That's not a that's not a monoculture, right? When you when you can look to the horizon and see nothing but soybean, and everything else is dead. That's a monoculture. And I think that people get so wrapped up in terminology and technique 
that they, they don't under, and like, I think even like when you're kind of saying like, well, that's the Molson stuff, I, I really don't think it is. I think that's the misapplied use of his work is what it really yeah, is. I, like, I totally agree. Yeah. You know, I, cause like an herb spiral, well, depends, right? And that's my favorite phrase for everything permaculture. It depends. Should yeah. I put one in? I don't know. There's certain climates where if you put one in and you don't maintain it, You've made a weed spiral. No. <laughs> right? Or I love when Mark Shepard was talking about the cob oven and building one in the rainy climate of New England. And they, yeah, they yeah, spent yeah. like half their PDC at this one PDC smoke at building a cob oven. And then it rained and the oven melted. And there's all this beautiful rock laying all over the place. He's like, build a stone oven. It's right there. You put yeah, it exactly. together. It's rock. It lives out in the rain. It doesn't care. It works just as good. Yeah. But they were married to the, like, we have to have a cob oven here. I know. Oh, my God. You know, or we have to have a hoogle mound here. And, you know, this hoogle mound's not high enough to really be a hoogle mound. Yeah. I don't give a crap. I buried wood. That's the whole point. And that's how this system works. And, you know, this system is not designed to be perpetually Like a hoogle culture is a perfect example, right? So people want to build a hoogle mound and then grow tomatoes in it year after year after year. Yeah. Hoogle culture is not designed to be a perpetual annual system. It's designed to grow annuals and then success in the perennials and then basically collapse onto itself and build a shitload of soil and long-term perennial production. That's what it's supposed to do. Well, right. if you don't know that and you just have to see one of Paul Wheaton's videos on freaking YouTube and a guy grew a tomato out of it and it worked, And all of a sudden you have these mounds in your backyard. The first year covered in tomatoes. You know what they are next year? Because you haven't put anything in there to occupy the space long term. They yeah. are the biggest weed piles you've ever oh, seen in your life. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, the, the thing is with that stuff is that the long, we still haven't really seen the long term. Like that's, these ideas are still pretty new. Like Hugoculture, Sepp Holzer might have been doing that for, I don't know, 10, 15 years. I don't know exactly. Like 30. Okay, More but, like 30. but I haven't seen anybody do that on a large scale for farming. Like, I mean, I think that would probably work on the homestead or the garden sense. When I think about using beds like that for farming, I just think how much of a nightmare that would be to maintain. Like, how do you run a cedar through there? How do you... You don't. I, See, that's, that's the a, thing. It's not an annual production system. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that, that makes, it makes sense in that, in that regard. Um, but yeah, I, I'll tell you... I'm in no way, shape, or form prepared to turn my farm into a... No, well, <laughs> and also, so, okay, so he builds these mounds. They're they're two meters tall, right? Yeah. 70-degree angle. And, and and people go, well, why why doesn't anybody in America build them that way? Because you don't want that in your front yard. Right? <laughs> yeah, it was so, horrible. So I've seen people do hugelkultur. It looks just like your beds. It's yeah. in the ground, and it's a raised yes. bed on top of it. Works yeah. great. Yeah. Works great for that. Doesn't yeah. work the same way. Totally different application of a principle of sequestering carbon, building fungal nets, etc., moisture wicking. Because basically what you've got then is a giant wicking bed. The yeah. wood doesn't hold water. It wicks it from, from the subsurface. So exactly. it works, but if you don't know how to put it together that way and you don't know how to maintain it, then you end up with the problem not being the solution, but the problem being the problem. Yeah. Or so the solution being the problem. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. So... um You're, you're actually doing some work with Diego because we haven't gotten really deep into technique today of what you do. And I, yeah. I, I did that on purpose because you've got some great podcasts with him over there. And are you doing something now with him where like you're doing like a weekly thing or something like that? Yeah, we're doing a show called The Urban Farmer on it's, you go permaculturevoices.com slash TUF 
and we have, we're on episode five now. It just came out today. And yeah, basically, it's cool. Like, Diego is following me. We're doing the show every single week, and it's basically just what am I doing on the farm and kind of giving people a first uh, a firsthand experience on what it's like to do this. Diego actually came up here last summer, spent about a week with me, just hung out, uh, worked on the farm and checked it out. And so he, it's cool because he's kind of had, he's got this lens now where he's seen it in person and now he wants to share it with people. And so it's great because he frames questions and he understands the system. And so, yeah, we basically want to get as many people doing this as we possibly can because I think it's a great, it's a great first step into getting to farming because it's relatively easy to do. I started my business on $7,000 and have grown it like crazy since then. So, um, it's an, e- it's, it's a, it's a, it's a first way, you know, gateway to get into farming. I mean, you can't buy an acre with $7,000, not an acre that you can farm. And, and oh, God, that, no. that tells you about leveraging things. See, here's another thing I think that people are too wrapped up in, in permaculture. When it, when it comes to the social justice crap and the purple breathers, they're also about, you know, nobody, nobody really owns land and it's all, all that crap. But in the end, what you always hear the problem being is land access. Then you talk to the person about what they mean by that. Well, I don't own land. And what they want is complete control of the land, and they want to own all the land, and they want to do it their way with their herb spirals and their whatever. Well, yeah, people got to get over that. You know, like, let go of the fear. Let go of the fact that, like, you are not totally in control. Right? No. We are in a big system. And I mean, I don't mean the the government. I mean the, the world, the universe. We are in this massive system. We're all the small little pieces of it. Get over that. And what I like to tell pe- uh, farmers to encourage them is look at the statistics. The average age of a farmer in North America is 60 years old, and less than 2% of people in North America know how to farm. There is a scarcity of farmers, but there's an abundance of land. That land isn't all available for us to buy. Who cares? It Who doesn't cares? matter. And it doesn't what's matter. Get this way, right? Get your head outside of that thing. You do Ownership is pretty subjective anyways yeah so so um like yeah uh people like you know a lot of people have said to me oh you bought a house that's great it's like i didn't buy shit i bought <laughs> i bought a, i bought a mortgage i bought a ticket to the bank to put a barcode on the back of my neck yeah I have a mortgage i don't own shit right? <laughs> I, I had to get it so that i my my landowners wouldn't sell it basically because i didn't want to move all my stuff no the, i understand that house. but like here's what i'm saying like so people get all hung up in that and then you talk to me go well, what do you do and they're like well i work in tech support right and, and i you know i'm doing this job until i can save enough money to buy a piece of land and okay okay now how does that Further your knowledge of farming or permaculture or anything like that. Well, it doesn't really do that. I, you know, okay. And, and so, so you own the desk you sit at. Well, that's oh, it. The, 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 the company owns. Oh, I, I see. I see. So you own the building that, that you work in then, right? No. Okay. Do you own anything that you do your job with? Well, other than myself, no. So wouldn't it be better if someone else owned the land and you were farming and making a living? Making the same amount of money while gathering the experience, That's and exactly do you really it. want to risk a two hundred thousand dollar mortgage or land loan before you have the experience to know whether or not it's going to be viable, or is it better that you mitigate the risk by going in as cheap as possible, getting yes. the experience, developing a profit model, and then deciding what to do with your profit? Oh, Jack, the so... knowledge to be able to apply after you do that. And again, and see people's brains go. Like they I know, and and, and again, you're talking about 
capital outside of finance too, which is so key, is that stop looking at things through the lens of finance. It's like, oh, I must buy this land with this money. Sure. And do this. Like, forget buying it because like what you said, get go in the path of least resistance, go in cheap, First, figure out if you want to be a farmer. I've seen so many people. I mean, I, so I consult for people all over the U.S. and Canada, and people have this romanticized idea of what farming is, and they go and just, I'm going to go buy land. It's like, take on a mortgage, and then two years later, they go, oh, we're broke. We can't make money farming. What, 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 why does everybody think small farming can be profitable? It's because you went in high risk. I told you, don't, you don't need yeah. to buy land. Go in and yeah. first figure out if you like doing it. And well, you can do that on $5,000. Start a business today. Get and think about this, right? backyard and do it. Do you even need to be a farmer to play in this space? And my answer to that is absolutely not. So a guy came to one of my workshops here, and he said to me that he had a family member that was going to loan him some money to buy some big piece of land. They were going to build this permaculture farm, and then they were going to have this vehicle that delivered the food to all these places locally. And it's this huge local food movement there. It's a perfect place for it and all. And, you know, but it was going to take time to build all this up. And he needed a business plan so that they would give him the money and all. And I'm like, okay, hold on. It's a big local food movement there. He's like, yeah. I said, and your end idea is a vehicle that has these contracts with all these restaurants and, 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 and individual home deliveries and stuff of food. He goes, yeah. So you can lease something like a, you know, Kia Opta, not an Optima, a Kia Sorento, a little SUV that would do that for like 200 bucks a month. Yeah. And then there's all these people already growing the food. Why don't you just go out and build that piece of the business? Why don't you just go out and talk to all the people already producing the food about what they have in surplus, what they would sell it to you for, find out what the, the the market will bear on the other side of it and build the delivery piece of that. And then then if you actually built a farm later on, you already have a, a totally different business unit that's on its own profitable. Exactly. And that's that's something that urban I think urban farmers have a big role to play in is is this sort of marriage of the rural and the urban farmer is like where do we connect? And there's there's certain things that rural farmers can do that urban farmers can't and vice versa. One, one of the big challenges for rural farmers today is that they're, they don't have access to the market because they don't live in the community. They don't, they, they're not interacting with the marketplace like I am. Like when I talk about my multiple plots, I have these multiple edges of interaction with my marketplace. And so I have a high level of, of connection to the marketplace, but I don't necessarily, I can't really grow certain vegetables because like growing potatoes on my farm doesn't make sense. Cabbage, onions, garlic, those things don't make sense to grow on an urban scale when I'm got on the micro like acreage. You know, I'm on a third of an acre. But somebody like me could cooperate with some rural farmers, bring in their product and sell it through my market streams and take a small profit from there. The profit might not be the biggest part of the pie as far as capital return, but what is is that allows me to access more market share because I have more variety to sell. So and you're more valuable to your customer. Absolutely. Like an urban farmer could start with growing 10 crops, growing high-value crops on a quarter of an acre, get some cash flow going, and then start a CSA program with 100 members by working with three or four other farmers in the in the area that once a week bring in a bunch of stuff that you can yeah. put through your CSA. And you could do that as a pay-up-front CSA or a pay-monthly or, or pay-as-you-go CSA, however you want to structure it. But there's a lot of opportunities for people to cooperate. And this is the thing that I've just discovered through being in business and this type of business myself is that all this stuff that people say about capitalism as dog-eat-dog is like, 
is crap. Because, uh, doesn't because, work that way. Well, for one, dogs don't eat dogs. But yeah. the other, the other is that <laughs> cap- capitalism is actually far more cooperative than any other system because it doesn't involve coercion. It, right? it there is no dog-eat-dog. Dog. It's all voluntary. Like 99.9% of the interactions that I do as a business person are cooperative. Most of the and, people bashing capitalism have never actually seen capitalism in action. Everything that they're referring to as capitalism is actually, in, in, in this era, is what I call neo-fascism. Yes. So, yeah. so check this out. Like old-school fasc- old fascism was the state and the corporations working together, but the state was the one with the money that handed out the money to the corporations. All that's happened is the hand flip, right? So in any relationship, the hand giving the money's in charge because the hand that gives the money's higher than the hand receiving it. Yeah. So all we did is take the cronies on the other side, and they turned the apparatus of government into basically their, their network of bitches to pass all of their crap, and they pay the government instead of the other way around. So we have a neo-fascist model, which is a... a, a Probably one of the the worst forms of socialism for creating in inequitable distribution of, of goods Absolutely. and services, and then we call it capitalism and see capitalism sucks. Give us more of that. Yeah, well, I mean that's that's the whole that's the whole propaganda piece, though, right? Too, you, you, it's and it's just like Orwell said in 1984. Everything is double speak today. You know, it's like everything is the opposite of what it's meant. So you got to tell people that capitalism is a problem because that way. They can rein in this new system and they can just carry on with what they're doing because, you know, as Noam Chomsky says, it's getting harder and harder to coerce people. Yeah. Like a hundred years ago, it was a lot easier to coerce people. Governments could get away with all kinds of stuff, but because of the internet, because we can disseminate information so quickly today, it's getting harder and harder to coerce people. So what you got to do is you got to control the information. And that's kind of the whole thing of, uh, you know, manufacturing consent. That was one of his books. That's the idea there is that you got to manufacture the information and you got to control people's thoughts. Yeah. And that's what all this stuff is just bullshit. It's all propaganda. Like, you know, I've been peeling back the layers of the matrix, man, and the onion goes deep. I've been yeah. peeling back these layers and it goes so deep that you experience these massive cognitive dissonances where you're just like, oh my God. There's another layer that I've thought something has been a certain way my entire life, and holy shit, it's the complete it's opposite of what I thought. But you, you, you stick with the solution here a little bit. Like, so these small businesses are a big part of that solution. And what you were just talking about before we got off on that, that rail was, you know, that, okay, you as an urban farmer might be able to sell somebody else's stuff to your customer base. And there's certain things that you wouldn't grow like potatoes. Well, there's other things you wouldn't do, like, so I do ducks. Now, we live thousands of miles apart, so it doesn't work for us. But if you were down in Fort Worth selling to trendy restaurants, and I'm sitting up here with duck eggs, and I got chefs willing to drive from freaking Houston to Fort Worth to get my eggs, you can probably sell some of them down there in Fort Worth. Absolutely. And and whatever I have in excess, I'd be happy to maybe put out to you at a wholesale rate. You make a little money. I probably make more. But the, the, the real thing there is... There can be like almost this this artificial premium that can go on it because if I'm successful in my business and I don't really need to use your channel, but you know every month I end up with you know four or five six dozen extra, and you go into your trendy restaurants and say yeah I have these and they say well we'll take eight dozen and you go sorry, I get four dozen a month yeah right and they're from a local producer and it's the only ones that are available down here. And I'm going right, to this place next, right? They want them all, and, and instead of getting you know seven and a half a dozen like I do, you might be getting twelve, fourteen. 
That's exactly it. I mean, and that's that's a whole scarcity thing too, right? Is that it's just a, a market principle that the more scarce something is, the price goes up. So, I mean, yeah, sure, that's great. I mean, and we're just kind of t- we're just tipping the iceberg here. Yeah, we have of, no idea where this goes until we do it. Possibility of cooperative businesses that can be structured in these type of things. And so, for me, I mean, I don't want to open too much of another can of worms, but I mean, I am I have this theory that. We can replace every single service the state provides people, whether it's building roads, uh, health care, all these things, by forming cooperatives. Yeah. And these can be non-for-profit cooperatives because it's basically – if we want to, say, create a health care system for ourselves, I mean, we can't really do this right now because the damn state has a monopoly on this type of thing. But if, if that changes or maybe we just start to do it and stop asking permission, but we could form – get 100 people together, pool in $1,000 each – we could hire a doctor and a nurse to basically work on a part-time basis to service the needs of these 100 people. And since yeah. the motive isn't profit, the motive is just to service the needs of the people in the cooperative. It's actually their definition. That's the yeah. state's definition of exactly. both, but it's but run for be- the benefit and and for the services of the members. Right? But it's better because it's done without coercion and it's Correct. done in a peaceful, voluntary way that the service would actually be better because – we wouldn't, you know, the problem with, and, and Canadians often rail on the, the U.S. system, because I, I, I personally don't think our healthcare system is great. I think it sucks, personally, because if you get cancer in our country, get in line. Whereas, at least in the U.S., you can pay and get it looked after, even though it's crazy expensive, but that's because it's monopoly, too. But people, people often freak out when I say, I think healthcare should be completely privatized. People in Canada go, no, you, oh, that'll be like the U.S. And it's like, no, 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 it's not like the U.S., because that's not necessarily fully privatized, either. But what if you and I had, we, we shared our values and we said, you know, we're going to form a health cooperative with all the people that share our values. So people like us who eat local, grow a lot of their own food, they're not shooting heroin and yeah. getting wasted all the time and living these unhealthy lifestyles. We're going to create a cooperative of people that share our values because it'll probably be really low operational overhead because we're not going to have all these people that have all these chronic illnesses from having a shitty diet their entire life, Right. So, and a doctor's not going to order 17 tests just because he can bill for them. Well, and that's exactly it. And that's where the problem is on that. That's where the, why healthcare is so damn expensive, especially even in Canada, is the doctors are corrupt because they get a check from the government no matter what. So here, the doctors, like people often complain about how expensive healthcare is becoming for the, the government, even though we only pay a small portion for it as citizens. But it's expensive for the state because the doctors take advantage of it. Every well, time somebody comes to. in, they write, a, they write a check. They get 28 bucks. So some doctors crank out like 100 visits a day. And that's why when you go to a doctor, here, they'll talk to you for like 10 seconds. And then they're yeah. gone. And they're just cranking them out because yeah. they, there's, there's an incentive for them to do that. So well, I'm thinking that everything is based on incentive. So you I take think that we, have to, we have to build these new systems, and here's why. You can't really blame that doctor because it's not the doctor that's system that's corrupt. It's the system that's corrupt, and he, he has to run that system that way or he doesn't make any money. They, well, that's they, exactly They've it. created that. So check this out. Like If you were on a plane, and, and you, you know, this was before 9-11, and you could actually hijack a plane and get it to go somewhere, and you broke into the cockpit, put a gun to the pilot's head, and say, I, I want to go to Seattle. Okay, he's probably heading to Seattle, right? But if you said, I want you to get there by flying this plane into the water and, and, and driving it under the water and come up in, in the harbor at Seattle, he'd say, there's there's no way I can, even if you kill me, I can't give you what you want. It's a plane. 
it doesn't do that. You need a boat, dude. Let yeah. me take you somewhere where you can get a boat and get the hell off my plane, get the gun <laughs> out of my face. Well, asking people in these systems to do better is like asking the pilot to fly the plane under the water or take it to the moon. You need a boat or a rocket. So we exactly. have to build our boats, our rockets, our airplanes, our cars, our trucks, metaphorically, as these systems that do the things that we believe only their systems can do. That's and it. some of this stuff we just have to just do. Healthcare, great idea, probably ambitious for the first one because it's one of the most regulated places and the doctor well, has to have a exactly. license and they'll take That's his it. license away. There's no free market in that whatsoever. No. Right. No, but we could do it with alternative health practitioners. See, that would be that's outside of their little network of bullshit. Yes, and that's yep. where, that's where it's got to start. We got to find these little niches and start making this stuff happen. But the challenge is, and this is why I don't I don't subscribe to the whole save the world type thing. And let's get the masses involved. Forget the masses. Let's just get the people that are already switched on and make this shit happen because. Converting the masses is a waste of time because you will just burn yourself out. Forget the masses. Start in your community. It's it's the whole permaculture fundamentals. Think globally, or think globally, act locally. Start now. Start something. Start solutions. Take responsibility for your life, and and people around you will do the same. And you can start making a lot of things happen. Even if it's on your street, in your neighborhood. In your own hometown, it doesn't matter. You can make an incredible amount of change just by doing stuff and making it happen, and people will join your cause. Well, you know, and leaving the whole masses thing behind, I think that part of that is I've always believed that the people that cause the problem should have no say in fixing it. I wish they would fix it. Like, you know, that's an ethic you learn when you're a kid. You broke the window, you work to pay off the debt and fix the window and what have you. But if the person that broke it broke it through incompetence or malice and retains the malice or the incompetence, I don't want them fixing it. Oh, God, because, no. because they're going to make it worse, right? If you take your car to a mechanic and you come back and all your parts are laying on the floor and he doesn't know how anything goes back together and says, don't worry about it, you start worrying and you tow your car to a competent mechanic. Yeah. So most of these people that, that were looking to solve the problem, they created the problem and they're profiting from the problem. Right. Oh, so yeah. they have no incentive to fix it, nor do they have the capability or the intention. So we need to do it on our own. And I, I think that like kind of where I'd like to, to wrap things up with today is how we can do that with all these different forms of capital. We talked about social capital. One of the things we've talked about all through the show, but we've not put a name on experiential capital. When yes. you do these things, you exactly. get the experience. But there's so much more to these things. So like experiential capital is not just the experience you have. If you and I are working together in a voluntary relationship, my experience now in this network becomes one of your assets. If I'm one of your suppliers or vendors or partners, you exactly. can rely on my experience. Yeah. And I think, I think that that's also referred to as human capital, like the collective knowledge and experience of people in a geographical area. Like that's, that's, so that's, that's crucial, right? And I mean, and, that, and the, the beauty of that form of capital is that that's, that's contagious, right? Like I can't tell you how many thousands of farmers that I've lectured and talked to now all over the U.S. and Canada and even people in my community that have come and learned from my experiences. And, and the beauty of this is what, what's so cool about this on, on the human experience is that the more you simulate experiences, the faster you learn. So like so many people want to go rogue 
and just want to go and be like the, and I'm sure in the prepper movement, you see this a lot. It's like, you know, hoard your stuff, go and be the lone wolf and that whole thing. It's like, forget that, man. That, that whole thing is like a recipe for burnout is like leverage the people in your area, learn from them and build off of their experiences. And that's why I say to people, like, if you want to get into production fast, if you want to learn something fast, simulate, 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 find mentors, source out high grade information, go to the people that are doing what you want to do, pay them for their time, exchange real value for value, however that looks, fiat, trade, whatever it is, and leverage and simulate their experiences and build on what they have. So many people want to like start from the beginning, you know, or they want to like do it all themselves and, 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 you know, reinvent the wheel. And it's just like, man, that is the recipe to kill yourself. We need to start sharing this knowledge. And this is what's so, what's so fun about the fact that you're down in Fort Worth, Texas, and I'm up here in Kelowna, BC, Canada, and we're talking about ideas and we're seeing this stuff spread. And I think where, what's so important about what, even what we're talking about today is that we're getting this stuff out there and putting it out in the free market of ideas. And I think what, how we're going to make change is that by making a compelling case, in the free market ideas that wins favor and people say, Hey, I like the way that sounds. That's you're speaking my language. And then those people come on board with us and we find ways to work together either locally or internationally. And I think what you mentioned at the beginning of the show of just these, these virtual nations is like, man, let's do that kind of stuff. Like let's start creating. I mean, this is where, this is what Bitcoin was, you know, Yeah. and, and bit, and I'm waiting for the next 2.0, right? Yeah. I don't necessarily think Bitcoin's going to be, the be end all save no. the finance system, but well, it's, it did, it's, it took it's the little, beginning. It said, look, your government's not the only people that can make money. We just typed some shit into a computer and made money too, and it works. Absolutely. Money's only a system of accounting. That's what people, the money is bullshit. It's the system of accounting. It's the value in the economy being exchanged that actually gives the currency its value. But what yeah. you were just nailing right there, like, so you kind of segued, I don't even know if you realized it, into cultural capital. So when we think of that, If we get purple breather, we're thinking those great tribe in the Amazon that hold these wonderful headdresses or whatever. But culture, like we have a culture too, right? And, yeah. and, and then as a business group or as a, as an idea factory or whatever, you develop your own culture in the corporate yes. world. They call it a corporate culture. So if, if you were a programmer right out of college and, and Microsoft and Google were both courting you and Microsoft would pay you a little bit more money starting out, you're probably still going to go to Google because it's a cooler corporate culture. It's something you want to be part of. And if we can build these the cultural capital in what we're doing beyond just the the way that people think of it with you know handcrafting or or whatever, we can actually build a culture of like I want to be around these people because of the free exchange of ideas. Like yeah. what's going on at PV2. You know, Toby Hemingway totally. basically came out as an anarchist, and the the, the know, fire circles it. that night were yeah. like there were all these people that were willing Epic. to admit that that's what they've been their whole lives and didn't well, want to dude, kill anybody. It, coming out as an anarchist is harder than coming out. Oh, I don't want to say I don't want to. Okay, I don't want to yeah. say I'll get uh, I'll get destroyed there. by politically correct people. Yeah. But coming out as an anarchist is extremely difficult. Like I, I came out as an anarchist probably maybe around a year ago, though I, I, when I look back on my life, I've been an anarchist in my form of thinking for many years, even when I identified as a socialist. And, um, it is difficult because you get so much fear and hatred from people because people think, well, 
you know, you're just going to leave the poor people and, and, and who's going to build the roads and, 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 and it's just fear, fear, fear. And I find yeah. that that's the first layer of the onion of, yeah. of, of the matrix, right? Is like peeling back that fear. And all I say to that is like, look what happened after slavery. All the things that we didn't even imagine back then happened. When, when, when slavery was abolished, people said, who's going to pick the cotton? Yeah. Who's going to throw the cross? People were freaking out. This is going to yeah. destroy the economy. What happened? If you would have said back then, in a hundred, in fifty years, there's going to be a guy who's got a BCS rototiller in a city who can farm by himself and feed two hundred people a week. People would have said, "You're crazy." Smoking crack, right? You're crazy. That's impossible. But it happened, right? Uh-huh. Is once the shackles come off and more liberty comes our way, more things that we never even imagined. The science, the science fiction writers of the 50s and 60s couldn't even write about because they happen the more free we become and that's where i that's for me is my my best case for anarchism is like the more um tyranny and socialism and all this garbage that we get rid of the more free we become the more possibilities happen and that's and that's why i'm hopeful because i think these ideas their time has come but we've never been better set up to actually have a real shot at setting up self-determined, self-reliant, productive communities. And I'm not saying anarchism for the world. Forget that. I don't care about that whole thing. Saving the world. That To me, that's just like a lost cause. Start with your community. Yeah. And then you and I, you can start one down in Fort Worth. I can start one in Kelowna. I mean, we're already doing this, right? And that's well, what it's like when people are like, who's going who's gonna to build the roads and shit like this? Like, listen, dude, why don't you just chill out about that right now? First of all, I don't know if you've paid attention. There's a shitload of roads out there already. So they're there. You know, as far as who's going to build more and who's going to maintain them for for the immediate future, no matter what you and I do on our own, state's going to do that. Okay, we don't even need to worry about how we're getting to a place where we don't have the states managing the roads right now. We just need to start with a basic understanding of what theft is, how it's going on, what coercion's going you know going on. That doesn't mean we're going to topple the state. What it means is we're going to start building our own systems. Outside of that apparatus exactly. where if we can, we're going to accept the interactive edges where we have to interact with them. We're going to do it as smartly as possible, and we're just going to start getting shit done. And the, the next objection I get, I'm sure you've heard this, is, well, anarchism would be a great system if everybody was ethical and moral and what have you. And my response to that is, I don't give a shit about everybody else. Do you need the state to threaten you with a gun to make you decent, ethical, and moral? Well, no then you don't need to worry about what everybody else does. You need to worry well, about yeah. you and finding other people like you to start building shit with. This is this is seven generation thinking here. Well, and it's it's like that 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 saying, that old saying about anarchism that uh, you know, anarchism is no guarantee that people aren't going to rape, steal and plunder, but government is a guarantee <laughs> that people will rape, steal and plunder. And all you got to do is flip the history books and look at the death toll of the uh, the, the socialist empires of of times past to see you know 80 million people killed under socialism man i mean doesn't have a good track record where i'm looking for the death toll of anarchist societies and you know, <laughs> few and well, far between right what's there's a meme that says something about it, it doesn't go to anarchism it goes at least to libertarianism and it's like libertarians their evil plot is to take over the world and leave you alone exactly. <laughs> it's like well, that's yeah. it, and that, that's why I think the whole concept of liberty, even like the founding fathers talked about, is that like the reality is, is that human beings are very diverse. We have diverse culture, diverse everything, and I think that's all great. 
But the, re- the reality is we can't all agree. Like what, work, what might work for you down in Fort Worth might not work up here in Kelowna. And so I'm not going to tell you that you should follow my idea. This whole one-size-fits-all policy thing is just monoculture. And I always like to bring it back to agriculture in the yeah. sense that – because it's an easy way to visualize it, right? And monocultures don't work in nature. They don't exist. They fall apart. They're fragile. And government is just a, is just a form of monoculture because it's like – I it's this self-righteous idea that like you think you have the best system for, to work for everybody. So now you're going to force that idea on everybody else. But it's like – what works for somebody in Kelowna, B.C., Canada, on the west coast of Canada, doesn't work for somebody in Newfoundland or Prince Edward Island in Canada. Completely different bioregions, completely different cultures, different dialects of language. Like, this whole thing of making something work for everybody is nonsense. And, that, and that's where I get, you know, even freaked out with the, where climate change, how that's been co-opted by, like, the, the new socialists. And it's just like, my God. Are we not learning that these one-size-fits-all policies never have worked in history? Mm. Well, and everything the state does is a monoculture. The educational system is... Oh, is, that's the best. That's the it, best it looks like a monoculture, right? Oh, Straight so rows and all is the same, and everybody's yep. graded based on the same system, and yep. everybody's given the same classes, even if they're going to do completely different things. So, you know, maybe it doesn't matter if we grow corn the same way, and I'm going to uh, cut it off the cob and, and put it in a wok, and you're going to, uh, to, to roast it on the cob. It doesn't matter that we grew it the same way. But a human being... And one's going to go off and be a farmer. One's going to go off and be an engineer. One's going to go off and be an artist. One's going to go off and, and be a musician. And we give them the exact same education. That's, that's downright stupid is what it is. Oh, it's insanity. I mean, the, the public education says, oh, I mean, God, we'll, we'll be talking for another hour there. once that's... we go down that road. <laughs> We, we honestly do need to wrap up. I think we're at about two hours of this. Yeah, point. totally. Um, but I wanted people to know how they can find out more about you. And you've got this uh, this course coming up and, and also uh, kind of revisit the topic of how people can learn more about like your daily activities with the uh, the work you're doing with Diego. Yeah, so they can check. They go to permaculturevoices.com slash T-U-F. They'll get the, the Urban Farmer. And then uh, there's we've got five episodes, and we're cranking them out every week. They can, if people really want to dive in and learn everything and simulate my experiences of the last six years, they can sign up for profitableurbanfarming.com. And that is a fully multimedia um, online course that we've created. I've been filming everything I've done on the farm for two and a half years. Plus, it's got written content just like my book. And then um, my book that's coming out on New Society Publishers is called The Urban Farmer, and that'll be out in November and pre-orders for that have gone up now. You can go to newsociety.com and just search the urban farmer and there's like a 20% discount there. If people uh, pre-order it now. Very cool, Great. man. Well, I appreciate you being with us. I'll have links to all that stuff in the show notes today and uh, people can, can get more information. And I just want you to know you are welcome to come back on the show anytime you want and, and not just talk about farming. We could talk about any of these subjects. And get awesome. Maybe maybe instead of being so shotgun, pick one and really dissect it because um, there was a lot of times you were talking. I'm like, sounds like this guy listens to my show, and I know he doesn't. Um, <laughs> because I was like, yeah, it's just great to have someone come on from a totally different viewpoint and just restate so many of the same ideals I've been trying to get into people's minds. And um, I, I, I think that one of my biggest goals, people have, have taken the term teaching people or telling people how to think 
as being bad. I think people telling people what to think is what's bad. I uh-huh. think you should be working very hard to tell people how to think and then let them use the how to determine their own what. Exactly, or their own why. And I think that is a big part of what you're doing with with urban farming. It it, it all comes back to that is people developing their own lifestyle under their own rules, under their own conditions, and getting things done their way in their life and having voluntary relationships with people around them. That's Mm -hmm. that's what you're doing. Um, I don't think any single one of your customers has bought from you because you went to the state and made them. Right. <laughs> exactly. You know, I, I don't think any of my listeners listen because I'm 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 on a government regulated radio station where that as happens to be the the dial where where it'll come in for them when they're driving a car. That's what we are building re- real value on is these voluntary associations, and, and the more we can build, the more we prove that it's viable. Because I think that's actually like the biggest crime the state has committed in the past couple hundred years is to really not only just be this this oppressive force. But actually convince people that you need coercion to have value or to, to get things done. That it's impossible to get people to agree to get things done. I mean, if you and I lived in a neighborhood and there was, we needed a road and, and there was no government going to build us a road, sooner or later we'd figure out how to get something done. If we, need, if we needed that road, we'd build that road because the reality is the government doesn't build roads. People build roads. And so whoever's paying for the road, that can change. That's not the, that's not the controversial. Yeah. Build roads. Human yes. beings can do anything. People need to get past the fear, start peeling back the layers of bullshit, and really take a look at the system for what it is, and get out there and, and make a difference. Absolutely, man. Well, again, I appreciate you being with us today, Curtis. Yeah, absolute pleasure, Jack. Anytime. And folks, with that, this has been Jack Spierko today, along with Curtis Stone, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. In our food these days, you know it's on our TVs. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. There's a better a better way You don't have to be another face in the crowd Don't have to live the way it's Make your own way Others will follow Revolution Revolution Someday we'll realize Our children just can't pay If nobody up there cares They're living for today
redemption.